0: A little smaller. There we are. Okay. Excellent. Getting myself all squared away. I'm doing a stream. I'm doing a, a new simulcast here tonight. I'm. Uh, this is my first time experimenting with Facebook Live, so I thought we'd give that a shot. Um, and uh, of course, our main broadcast is here in GoToWebinar. Uh, that's where I'm able to see everybody's uh, everybody's questions here um i am monitoring the twitch chat as well or attempting to and if people make comments on facebook i'll try to get those too I, again this is all this is all sort of new to me and i'm balancing a whole bunch of things but uh we'll see how this goes so welcome everybody welcome to the Treason of Isengard. I am super excited. We had so much fun talking about The Return of the Shadow, and I am now uh I I so when I first mapped out The Return of the Shadow class, I I had planned I think to cover it in 12 classes and I ended up taking 17 <laughs> classes to cover it. So, you know, um I was um I was a little bit um uh, unrealistic turns out, uh, in my, uh, in my expectations there. Uh, so I've now, you know, having learned my lesson, I've mapped out treason of Isengard, what I hope to be more realistically, I still have a pretty ambitious, uh, uh, plan for tonight here for, uh, or the first two chapters of the treason of Isengard. um, but it is worth taking time because this is the first time I've ever done uh, a detailed study of the manuscript history of the Lord of the Rings. And it is so neat to see this stuff uh, emerging and evolving. Um, (laughs) Jesse James Oakley is already anticipating how many classes I'm going to take to, to do the, the errantry chapter. And I will say certainly, um, uh, certainly it's going to be, uh, I, 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 you'll notice I put an entire week just for the, just for the errantry chapter. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be great. <laughs> Jennifer says a full class for each dream and two full classes for the poetry. Well, you know, okay. So I am going to go faster than I do in, uh, in the exploring the order of the rings class. I mean, there's no two ways about that, but, um, you know, we'll see. We'll see what we can do here. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and Arthur, look, well, I missed you, Arthur. You know, as soon as I I, I, I open up the the questions box to find uh, uh, a terrible pun awaiting me, and I'm like, Arthur's back. Um, anyhow, so okay, <laughs> all right, uh, we are ready to get going. Um, so. For those of you who haven't done the Return of the Shadow, I I was kind of um debating how much recap to do. Uh and I, I think I I'm I'm deciding on doing minimal recap mostly because there there's there's too much, right? <laughs> there's too much even to sum up. Uh so um I, I <laughs> So I think Arthur is just daring me to make that reference. Um so I'm um I, I I'm I, I'm just not gonna I'm just not gonna go there. There's there's really there's really it's too hard uh, uh, to talk about everything. So, here's what we're gonna do. Um, the very briefest of overviews. We're starting basically with the fourth phase. Well, that's not quite true. Okay. All right. All right. Let's try. I'll I'll try to sum up, Arthur. I'll try. All right. So he, he, here here's what we do. We'll rem- we remember that at the beginning of the Return of the Shadow. Tolkien is, is his, his initial go through, right? He writes the first chapter and he's trying to write a sequel to The Hobbit. And we can we, we were noticing how he was really trying to write in the spirit of The Hobbit, right? He was definitely writing the same kind of story as The Hobbit. Um, then he, he, you know, in his first pass through, uh, his first full pass in the, in the, in the second phase manuscript, um, he got all the way from the beginning, he rewrote the beginning, of course, and then he gets all the way up to Rivendell but it still, it grows up along the way. And of course, the turning point, the critical moment there in the second phase was when the Black Riders come in, right? In chapter, what was chapter two at the time, because The Shadow of the Past or Ancient History, as it was originally called, um, wasn't uh, wasn't invented yet. Uh, so it went right from the long-expected party to three is company and four is more, uh, I think. So... Um, uh, anyway, so he he, when the Black Rider shows up, and even Tolkien had no idea. You know, we looked at that wonderful line where you know a white horse comes around the corner, and he crosses out white and writes black above it. That's how spontaneous the Black Rider was. Um, so, um, so anyway, so when the, when the Black Rider shows up, everything escalates and everything changes. That's where the Ring Wraiths come from—the beginning of the concept of the Ring, really. Um, you know, the, the the idea of the corruptive influence of the Ring and the danger of it. The conversation with, in the conversation with Gildor, the Elf, is when we see, uh, uh, you know, Tolkien really first working out these ideas of like, what exactly is going on here, right? You know, what what is uh, in a sense what is this story about? Um. And we get through, you know, we get the attack on on Weathertop, right, and the flight to Rivendell, and then he goes back and he starts again. And for the third phase, which is the next, his next go through the story to this point, um, it, it, you know, we talked about how that was really kind of a good idea. It seems a little frustrating that he's going to stop and go back, but but actually, it seems to me like a good idea because he um, he had gotten to that point but the story had gotten totally out of control i mean it was the, the end of it was no nothing like the beginning it started off still as a hobbit sequel and by the end not a hobbit sequel at all the third phase he rewrote but he didn't make it all the way right it got as far as what like bree in the third phase uh before he stopped and then he had some new ideas and he did continue on um uh did write some post rivendell uh chapters there at the end we did get boromir uh and we did get as far as um as far as Balin's tomb uh, there by the end. Um, so the fourth phase, which we're going to be looking at today here at the beginning of the Treason of Isengard, uh, is when he's going to go back and he's going to, he's going to start again. But he's he's thinking through some, uh, some major problems. Here are the major things we're going to hit on tonight in our first Treason of Isengard session. Number one, the first and most uh, 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 challenging thing uh, that he has to deal with is... The choreography of Gandalf's movements. Now, that might seem like a really minor thing, right? But the, it's not a really minor thing. If you remember, if you did The Return of the Shadow with, uh, with us, you may remember, uh, that we, uh, we saw that Gandalf's movements were a big part of the problem in the in the original story. Gandalf is. I mean, it's like after the party, Gandalf The, the journey happens immediately after the party. Um, they take off because it's 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 Bingo's party. Uh, in of course, in one version of it, um, and uh, Gandalf takes off after the party with like the elves and dwarves who weren't so. Gandalf is in this like party caravan, you know, which is heading back to Rivendell ahead of Bingo, uh, and. And, you know, he's like, hey, so, OK, um, you know, come on along. And he's leaving notes to him at the Prancing Pony, like, don't stay too long now. Push along for, you know, bingo, catch up with us. And he has no idea that the Black Riders are chasing them. And it's, you know, there's this real disconnect. It's like Gandalf didn't get the memo. <laughs> the story changed and became really serious. Right. So so, you know, there were really good reasons uh, why Tolkien needed to, to to go back and make some changes, and we saw him doing that over the course of the third phase, and some of the ideas that he had and finally, we got you know the the clear idea of the ruling ring emerging um, and the influence of the ring uh, on uh, even uh, Bilbo and frodo all that stuff began to uh, began to be uh, uh, really active. Um, and, oh hey hi penny i just saw that penny joined uh on facebook that's great um uh anyway so um uh what time is it over there penny uh penny's in new zealand so i'm never, I, 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 I'm, I'm always it's always the, one of the most difficult conversions for me to do uh anyway um Oh, Arthur! Thank you for the reminder as well. So, uh, for those of you who would like to participate in a separate chat, if you're in the if you're in the, the webinar and you'd like to participate in a separate chat room, we do have a separate a separate chat room set up. If you want to talk amongst yourselves, um, there's the Twitch chat, of course, for those who are on Twitch. If you go to Mythgard.org. Um, and you, uh, uh, and, and you go to the Treason of Isengard page. There should be a little icon down at the bottom, a chat now icon that you can click on and enter uh, the chat room there. Uh, oh, there you go. Yes, Penny's uh, uh, peeking in during her lunch break. Right, of course. Yeah, excellent. Um, okay. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Okay, so where were we? So, we're entering into the fourth phase here. Why are Gandalf's movements important? Again, this is not just a nitpicky thing. It's easy to get lost in the details. You know, if you really are kind of digging into the charts and, and you know, there's like these four different uh, chronologies of Gandalf's movements and it's like there's barely any difference, but I mean, there is a difference and you can see what the differences are, but it's not like it's four radically different stories, right? So what's the big deal? What What is the significance uh, of this stuff? So that's the first thing we're we're going to look at. What is the deal with Gandalf's, you know, with choreographing Gandalf's movements? Secondly, we're going to Uh, Be looking at Trotter and the evolution of Trotter. Uh, Trotter, of course, uh, everyone remembers Trotter. Uh, You know, when we get to the Prancing Pony, there's a stranger sitting in the corner uh, who turns out to be very helpful uh, to the hobbit who is now mercifully named Frodo and not Bingo. Uh, and of course, it, it, it the the mysterious stranger in the corner, of course, turns out to be Trotter the Hobbit, who goes around wearing wooden shoes, uh, as everybody knows, uh, everybody's favorite character from the Lord of the Rings. So, uh, what comes of Trotter, right? And uh, and uh, when does Trotter's name finally change? Uh, so we're definitely um, we're definitely going to be uh, 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 looking at the the ideas that Tolkien is throwing out as he's finally refining that. And it finally begins to take a shape, uh, which we find out, um, uh, which we find to be, uh, recognizable, uh, and familiar. So the, after that, I want to look at the ring. Um, and in particular the stuff that he does both with Gollum and with Bilbo, uh, and with Frodo there in chapters one and two, um, the influence of the ring and his conception of the ring. Um, Where do we see him kind of settling in with that? Because there's some really cool stuff there. And then finally, I do want to look at Frodo's dream. Uh, The dream that he has in Crick Hollow in the published Lord of the Rings, which we just spent an entire class session talking about and exploring the Lord of the Rings last week. So it's it's very fresh in my mind and really fun uh, to see... Uh, to see this stuff uh, working out in the manuscript draft, so we'll definitely be looking at that uh, at the end of class. You know, if we get to if we get to Frodo's dream, we've almost made my goal here uh, for class today. So that's the plan. The overall theme, uh, as I you know, I titled tonight's session: retconning the Ring. Um, Tolkien was wonderful at retcon retroactive consistency going back and making things fit uh and that's the main thing that we see him doing here this sort of chief concern and christopher says it's at the same time that he's writing that stuff the balin's tomb stuff you know the the uh the the their first attempt across uh you know the first account of the snows in the misty mountains right uh the first uh, account of their trip into moria as he's doing that stuff he's also going back and niggling with this early stuff and trying to make all this stuff work writing his his uh you know sort of different versions of uh of Gandalf's uh movements writing his you know the 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 notes on the six uh separate um um uh, the six separate uh, slips that Christopher Tolkien talks about anyway um so anyway, that's the, uh, that's, that's the plan for today. That's what we're going to do. So let's get at it. All right. Um, we start with uh, the Gandalf stuff. So here is one of the notes that Tolkien wrote on one of these slips of paper. Gandalf finds out about the Black Riders, but is delayed because the Dark Lord is hunting him or because of Treebeard. He is alarmed at finding Frodo gone and immediately rides off to Buckland, but is again too late. He loses their trail, owing to the old forest escapade, and actually gets ahead. He falls in with Trotter. Who is Trotter? Of course, that weighty question, who is Trotter, this is a question, if you remember uh, uh, from last, you know, from the Return of the Shadow, this was a question that Tolkien is asked in the margin of his own writing many times. This is a question that has been puzzling him and to which he has come up with, uh, you know, different answers at various points along the way. Who is Trotter? But we're going to save that question for a little bit and focus instead on the first part. So... Okay, so Gandalf is going to find out about the so no longer do we have, you know, Gandalf leading the party train and just wondering what's holding up Frodo, right? And we already had him shifting away from that idea, of course, uh by the latter part of the Return of the Shadow. Um but the important thing is Gandalf is delayed. So what is it that separates the two of them? Why isn't Gandalf with Frodo when Frodo leaves? Because he is uh you know, it's 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 not just a there's not just Frodo wandering off or something. Gandalf is held, um, held prisoner. Either it's the Dark Lord hunt- hunting him, so does this mean Sauron himself? Maybe it's the Black Riders, maybe the Black Riders are after Gandalf, right? Or... Or it might be Treebeard. Um, him being held captive, Gandalf being held captive by the evil giant Treebeard, uh, is of course a possibility that's been on the table now for a while. And for those of you who didn't do the Re- Return of the Shadow, you might be doing, might be saying, Why? you know, say what <laughs> about the evil giant Treebeard? Um, but that's where we start. But don't fear, uh, as the argument that I made before and would still make, uh, would still assert very strongly. The question is not that Treebeard, as we know and love him, used to be evil before he became a good character. Uh, No, Tolkien's concept, there there is no world in which Tolkien's concept of Ents was, like, wicked from the beginning. Um, The Treebeard, the evil giant Treebeard, is a giant. Like, he's not even an Ent. He's, well, okay, he is an Ent in the old Anglo-Saxon sense of that word. Namely, he's a giant. Um, That is a gigantic human form whose name is Treebeard um and he is called a you know he is a, 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 you know the that we looked at the tree men right the references to tree men and the numer the, the several other references in some of tolkien's own writing to this idea of tree men the tree men immediately makes us think about ants but they're that's not ants they seem to be men the size of tree um and uh uh which in in other words just giants. Um, So he's a giant. And you you think about this, right? In some ways, giants are one of the most conspicuously absent things in the entire Middle Earth world, right? You think of traditional fairy tale tradition, especially traditional English fairy tale tradition. And um, giants are a big deal. Giants are a big part of it. Um, they, uh, They play a major role. Um, and there aren't any giants in The Lord of the Rings. We get giants, of course, just tossed in, well, and tossing things around in The Hobbit, right? You know, the the, reference is not only in Chapter 4 of The Hobbit to the, you know, the the, the boulder throwing by the stone giants uh, as they're they're going through the mountain passes, but even Gandalf's casual reference after they get through the other side in the beginning of Chapter 6 that, uh, you know, one of these days he has to find a more or less decent giant uh, to stop up the hole. So giants are clearly a thing in the Hobbit world, um, but they just as clearly have been taken out uh, of the Lord of the Rings world. Um, what we're left with instead, right, in literally in the place of uh, of the stone giants, is the sort of nebulous figure of the malevolent will of Karathras, right? That's kind of what we're left with uh, in the Lord of the Rings, which is interesting. Um, anyway, so... It's in in a, in a way it's a little weird that there aren't any giants in Middle Earth, um, and even weirder when, of course, as we're reading through and we find there were giants. Right, his plan uh, was for there to be giants. Treebeard, when he wants another enemy, you know, he wants another adventure. He wants another antagonist uh, for them to have to encounter and get past on their. Uh, uh on their journeys, he goes with giants, right the giant tree beard, so that's all good um uh yeah, so um, yeah, see uh Brendan, your question you know is it are to trolls as elves are to orcs, yeah. In a sense, though it's not really clear what that means, I mean, again, Treebeard kind of talks that way, but uh, it's not really clear exactly what that means, you know, that the trolls were made in mockery events is what Treebeard says. I don't know that I fully understand what that means. Made in what sense? Mockery in what sense? Uh, How are they connected? And besides that, don't forget... The question of the origin of orcs is certainly far from set by this point uh, in Tolkien's thinking. So uh, the last time we saw that, the last time we got a narrative account of the creation of the orcs um, was in the 1937 Quintus Silmarillion, it was just a couple couple years before he's writing this stuff, and the orcs are still being manufactured from scratch by Morgoth, right? They're not imitated. The, the idea of orcs being corrupted elves not on the table yet. That hasn't been proposed. Um, so, and it's never going to be something that's fully, uh, uh, resolved, I think fully in, uh, um, in, in, in Tolkien's mind. Um, okay. And yes, Karita, I get it. You're totally right that, um, it is, um, it's confusing right it's confusing to talk about tree men on the one hand and then later on make tree people uh <laughs> i know i get it like it's it's that is that is legitimately confusing um but uh you know there it is what can we do right but uh uh try to try try to soldier on um Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yes, (laughs) Sarah Lagarde points out delightfully, uh, that the main thing that the original giant tree beard, uh, and tree beard, the Ent seem to have in common, are the rootish toes, right? Their, Their toes are very similar. We did get a description. Remember there was that one little snatch of narrative uh, that Tolkien wrote about Frodo being separated from the rest of, at the breaking of the fellowship, Frodo gets separated from the rest of the company, and he ends up encountering the giant tree beard? Um, and uh, ends up coming up against his uh, his root-like toes. So yeah, I agree, Sarah. Their, their toes are similar. Not much else. Um, but uh, okay. Anyway, all right. Um, let's uh, let's carry on. Let's carry on moving here. So okay, back. Hey, let's b- back to our passage. How about that? Let's stick with the text. Um, so Gandalf is going to be held somehow by somebody. Right. Um, And then what's going to happen? So he's going to be held. Detail's still a little bit vague. He's going to get away. Detail's still a little bit vague. Uh, But he's going to find Frodo gone. Um, And so him being alarmed at finding Frodo gone shows. You may remember in the third phase, he was telling Frodo, make sure you leave, right? Don't delay. Delays are dangerous is, in fact, what he changes the title of chapter three to. He changes it from three is company and four is more to delays are dangerous. And the delay is delay in leaving. That as Frodo is waiting for Gandalf and waiting for... He waits too long for Gandalf. He should have left. Months ago, right? Um, But he waited and waited and was this close to getting caught by the Black Rider. It's at that point that the Black Rider, they don't just meet the Black Rider on the road. The Black Rider comes to Hobbiton, right? And has his conversation with Gaffer Gamgee. So, uh, you know, uh, Frodo escapes Hobbiton by the skin of his teeth because he delayed his departure. We see a reversal of that now, right? Now Gandalf is all frantic. Why did he leave? Why did he go without me? Um, And he's trying to find them and catch up with them, and he loses their trail owing to the Old Forest escapade, right? Escapade. Doesn't that suggest, it seems to imply to me, that um, uh, uh, Tolkien is suggesting that the Old Forest trip was a bad idea, right? Um, That it was a, again, like... They shouldn't have let he shouldn't have left and then not only did he leave he then like went through went through the old forest right like what a what a boneheaded idea that was so here's frodo uh, you know engaging in his wild escapades and and here's Gandalf being frustrated about that um, yeah Tomas is as if they did it just for fun right exactly um, yeah so uh, uh, so this is an interesting uh, um, I angle, right, you know, as we can and he falls in Gandalf falls in with Trotter, right? Um I assume he the he is Gandalf all the way through this paragraph, so I assume it's Gandalf who falls in with Trotter and gets a gets a briefing or something or sets Trotter to look out for them or something. And that's how in the end Trotter ends up getting uh uh you know connecting with them at Bree, I think, right? <laughs> Nancy Fosberg says, Peter Jackson was clearly wrong. A wizard is late quite often. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That does seem to be, uh, a, uh, a problem here. Um, and Stephanie, that's a really great point that there seems to be less of an intent, uh, to Gandalf's movements, right. And more of, uh, uh, more of a sequence of events or, or, or sort of just chance. Yeah, exactly. Um, As, uh, you know, it's like Tolkien doesn't really know why Gandalf's doing what he's doing or what's going on there. Um, Or Gandalf himself is just winging it, right? He's just trying to find Frodo. He's got no other plan. Um, Okay. Um, Later on, in a separate slip of paper, um, he works this out a little bit more clearly. Gandalf is behind at Bree. So you notice even in the, uh, because of the old forest escapade, he gets ahead of them. Right. He misses them. And he ends up he Gandalf ends up getting to Bree before them, because you'll remember the idea that Gandalf got there first and left a letter for them. That was an original element of the story. That was fr- from way back when he was on the party train. Right. Uh, and he left his cheerful, jovial letter for them, you know, from the party caravan on the way to Rivendell. Um, So that concept of Gandalf gets to Bree first and leaves them a message is something that he doesn't abandon right away. But now he's like, okay, hang on, this will fix some problems. Gandalf is behind at Bree. He knows Trotter, real name Aragorn. Trotter helped him track Gollum. He brings Trotter back in April 1418 to keep watch, especially southeast of the Shire. It was a message of Trotter's in July that took Gandalf away. "...fearing black riders. He meets Trotter at Sarn Ford. He then tells him of Frodo's intended departure on September 22nd, begs him to watch East Road in case anything happens to Gandalf himself. He visits Bree on way back to Shire on September something or other, but is pursued and tries to get round to west of Shire. Black riders pursue them. Christopher Tolkien thinks that's a mistake. He meant him." Gandalf has insufficient magic to cope with the Black Riders unaided, whose king is a wizard. They pursue him over Sarnford, and he cannot or dare not go back to the Shire. Eventually, he is besieged in the Western Tower. He cannot get away while they guard it with five riders. But when Black Riders have located Frodo and found he has gone off without Gandalf, they ride away. Three are ahead. Three follow Frodo, but miss him and get ahead at Brie. Three come behind. Gandalf follows after, meets Peregrine, Written above. News from Gaffer. All right, let's um, uh, let's sort this out a little bit here. Um, so, oh, excellent. Got some new people checking in here to the uh, Facebook chat. Greetings, CJ and Shay. Good to have you with us. Um, yeah. A wizard king, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, several of you are really taken with the wizard king. Fascinating that he's called the wizard king. I agree um, uh, that, uh, uh, St- Stephen, wizard king doesn't roll off the tongue quite like witch king, right? And honestly, Stephen, I would not be in the least bit surprised if the, uh, the phono aesthetics of that phrase played a very significant role in that shift, right? Because Tolkien uh w- would be at least as aware as you or I that Witch King sounds way better than Wizard King um uh I I think that that's a, a factor that would uh that would certainly matter to him um uh, so yeah Brandon this does seem to be the first glimpse of the Witch King but notice the other important thing about that name right whose king is a wizard like gandalf right Remember, Gandalf himself is still in a transitional stage. Gandalf of the Hobbit was more or less a, a, a professional wizard, right? Um, he's a little old man. Uh, there, there's, there's very little reason to think. Um, certainly in the Hobbit itself, uh, there's uh, very little reason to think uh, that um, there's more. Much more. I mean, that you know, Gandalf is knows magic, obviously, uh, but uh, but he's he's just a dude, and there are bunches of dudes like him. Right where he heads off to, you may recall, when he leaves the dwarves and Bilbo behind, is to a meeting of the White Wizards, not the White Council. Right? Don't be thinking Lord of the Rings style White Council of a meeting of the White Wizards. There are a whole bunch of White Wizards, right? And he was hanging out with them. And as we'll see later on, that concept is not gone uh, from this the current uh, the current moment here. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So. <laughs> several of you are quoting from the film uh, saying that I'm basically accusing Gandalf of being a a, a professional conjurer of cheap tricks uh, no I'm not exactly saying that but you know uh, kind of um, I have to say I think it's um, I think it's really interesting I think it's fascinating uh, that um, that Sarn Ford seems to get invented just to enable Gandalf to be able to cross the river on horseback with the ring wraiths in pursuit down in a place where there's no no excuse for bridges right uh, because this is the very first time that Sarn Ford is mentioned ever uh which I think is really cool anyhow okay so so we get the the concept Worked out a little bit more. We get his the coordination of his actions uh, with Trotter, his actions and movements with Trotters. Um, we get now we know that we know it to be a message from Trotter that Gandalf gets uh, that leads him to go off and investigate. That's why he separates from Frodo in the first place, and then he um, uh, then he Gandalf gets well, not caught but chased by the Black Rider. So notice he's even Tolkien is pulling back from the idea of Gandalf's capture. Right, he's not being fully, uh, fully captured, uh, not being actually being cornered, right, being pursued, and Gandalf swings around to the west. He doesn't want to just go in the opposite direction of the Shire, but he's certainly not going to lead, you know, the uh, the Ringwraiths straight in, you know, straight into Hobbiton, right? Um. So okay, all right, so that's uh, that's that's interesting, because um, he, he dares not go back into the Shire, um. So he is besieged in the Western Tower, um, and they, so he's trapped. He's not captured, but he's trapped, uh, and he's prevented from returning to Frodo, but then they find out, then they, the Black Riders, find out where Frodo is, and they just, like, they're like, whatever, we don't need the wizard anymore, right? So they, uh, uh, they take off and leave him behind, um, he, Gandalf, that is, and he follows after, um. Okay. So that's, um, uh, that's, that's interesting. And yes, um, uh, yeah, good. Um, Michael says uh, is you know Gandalf isn't someone who would end up in a wolf's belly. Well Michael remember he almost did end up in a wolf's belly in the Hobbit, right? He was going to throw himself down among the goblins and the and the wolves in chapter 6 of the Hobbit and that would have been the end of him we were told uh, right before the eagles showed up. Um it's one of the things that I find so interesting about that line in The Fellowship of the Ring, right? Um, whatever may be in store for old Gandalf, I wager it isn't a wolf's belly, Sam says, um, which is, again, under the larger, larger circumstances, uh, a pretty ironic thing for him to have said. Um, and, uh, oh, no, uh, uh, Jawahe, I think the wizard king referred to here is not Saruman, uh, but the witch king. Um, I think it is. This is the first, the first uh, sense of like that the 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 leader of the Black Riders is different from the rest of them. Has some kind of distinguish, uh, distinguishing, I don't know, status or ability or something like that. That he's special, and 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 there was no distinguishing among any of the Black Riders, um, in the previous uh, uh, versions that we saw in the Return of the Shadow. Um, although you're right to say that. You know the concept of an evil wizard working. You know, leading a whole bunch of the enemy. That certainly is uh, a new thing, right? And significant. You know that maybe in some ways it's it's. Uh, you could say that this is a seed uh, of Saruman in in some sense. But uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Let's keep going. Here's the text from the the new section of the, of chapter of ch- the very beginning of chapter two, uh, in the fourth phase text. So, so now T- Tolkien's going to go back and he patches together the third phase with some new material and creates what Christopher Tolkien describes as a complete mess of a manuscript, some newly written stuff, some old stuff, some old stuff with other things written on all just kind of jammed together, uh, making poor Christopher Tolkien's life very difficult. Um, But anyway, in that fourth uh, phase version, this is what we get. Gandalf stayed at Bag End for over two months, but one evening, soon after Frodo's plan had been arranged, he suddenly announced that he was going off again next morning. I need to stretch my legs a bit before our journey begins, he said. Besides, I think I ought to go and look around and see what news I can pick up down south on the borders before we start. He spoke lightly, but it seemed to Frodo that he looked rather grave and thoughtful. Has anything happened? Have you heard something? he asked. Well, yes, to tell you the truth, said the wizard. I did hear something today that made me a bit anxious, but I won't say anything unless I find out more for certain. If I think it necessary for you to get off at once, I shall come back immediately. In the meanwhile, stick to your plan. Okay. Um, so here we have the... this is the plan that we saw before now being worked out um, in the uh, in the narrative, right? Now now actually being put into the prose. We can see the message that's come in from Trotter. Um, he has heard the message from Trotter. The message clearly points towards, at least vaguely towards, the Black Riders. It cannot possibly be very detailed, right? You know, the message he gets from Trotter is clearly not, you know, Ringwraiths sighted, searching for Shire, flee at once, right? Or he would have fled at once. Um, but there's some rumors of some kind of... Uh, some kind of dark and uncertain thing going on, right? Uh, And so he's going to check it out. But notice he doesn't want to make Frodo nervous, right? He doesn't want him paralyzed by fear, kind of like Gilder the Elf doesn't want him paralyzed by fear. Um, Yeah, so, okay, um... Yeah, see exactly. Stephen uh, Cover says when I, when I need to stretch my legs, I usually just walk to the end of the hall and back. Right? Yeah, exactly. What well, Stephen, it does really show. Right? Gandalf is clearly trying to put uh, a very um, a very light uh, uh, um, tone on it right? He's going way out of his way not to alarm uh, Frodo. He's not. He, he's trying to make out like he hasn't even gotten any alarming news, and then when he is forced to confess that he's gotten alarming news, he tries to make it sound like it's not all that alarming, right? Um, uh, so, okay, and yes, Brian, isn't it? Brian Dimmick points out that it's very interesting that he does talk about um, he does talk about our journey, right? Um, uh Yes, before our journey begins. So it's clear Gandalf's intention absolutely is to leave with him. Um, And there is no, uh, there's no, hey, uh, uh, Frodo, you should go ahead. I'll catch up sometime, right? No, we're going to take our journey. I just need to go check some stuff out uh, first. Um, Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's get on to Trotter. So he's fixed the Gandalf thing. Gandalf trailing behind the whole way, right? Gandalf getting separated, not being able to get back. Frodo leaving, and Gandalf doesn't know exactly when he's left or where he is. And Gandalf just trying to follow along and catch up. And uh, and and not only is he behind Frodo, but he's behind the Black Riders who are behind Frodo, right? And ahead of Frodo. So he, uh, this Gandalf in this new position. Think how different this is from Gandalf in the party caravan right? Being like, hey, come on, bingo, catch up, would you please, right? Uh, So uh, we've certainly come a long way. Now, what about Trotter? So he's reconsidering Trotter, and here's this one brief plan. Um, At the end of the sketch, my father for a moment contemplated an entirely novel answer to this question, the, the who is Trotter question, that Trotter was a disguised elf friend of Bilbo's in Rivendell. He was one of the Rivendell scouts, of whom many were sent out, and he pretends to be a ranger. This was struck out, probably as soon as written. Okay, so what's the significance of this idea of Trotter being an elf? Obviously, this is not an idea that sticks around for very long. um, But uh, nevertheless, it seems to me interesting. It seems to me worthy of consideration, because it shows... A, um, uh, this, this, this other direction. And it's a pretty radical other direction from the way that, tr- what Trotter was at first, and where Trotter was going at first. Or rather, where Tolkien seemed to be going with Trotter's character. Um, the thing that Tolkien said several times about Trotter, even back the very first time uh, that Bingo, as he still was, met him, was that there was something familiar about him. Right. That he was uh, there was um, it was almost like, like he almost recognized him, but couldn't quite place who it was. And of course, it turns out that he is related to him. And, uh, you know, that's the, the story that Tolkien eventually comes to, that Trotter is a hobbit and that he's connected with Bilbo. He's one of the uh, um, he's one of the other sort of early um friends and relations of Bilbo who goes off on adventures long before, right? Who also had sort of disappeared from the Shire. And so it's this... The meeting with Trotter becomes catching up with one of those Tooks that went off on a mad adventure, right? And here's what came of them, right? Uh, So, yeah, Nadia, I I, I believe... Good, several of you asking this, Nadia and James. um, Elf friend means... Uh, friend who is an elf in this case like that he's actually an elf um uh i think that is what uh is being described here um it's possible that that's not what it means but i think it is uh, uh at least this seems to be christopher's interpretation of it as well uh because christopher talked about this being if he's merely an elf friend like Trotter turns out to be somebody who is friends with elves. Uh, Christopher would hardly call that, uh, you know, an idea that uh, is abandoned as soon as he puts it down, right? Um, so the thing that he se- would seem to abandon is the idea that he might possibly actually be an elf. Um, so uh, yeah, he's a friend, a friendly elf, Carita, exactly, um, an elf who is a friend of Bilbo in Rivendell, specifically. Um, so what is the big deal? Like, why does this matter? Well, again, huge shift, right? Trotter was a hobbit. And the idea of Trotter being a wild hobbit, right? Trotter being one of those hobbits that went off on Mad Adventures and, and h- here is his later career. Um, This is what... Uh, the, the, the parallel is really interesting. I mean, we talked at first about, you know, from way back in the second phase when we were looking at um the... The tame hobbits, right, and the domesticated kind of hobbit world over in the Shire, and then there's the wild hobbits, the Rangers, right, who uh, who were originally, you know, wild. Like so, there's this whole like separate hobbit culture, so that we were seeing this world in which the hobbits of the Shire were just one subculture of hobbits, and and, and a sort of a narrow uh, and uh, uh, and sheltered one. Um, yeah. Uh, Mark, uh, here on Facebook says it's fascinating to see Tolkien vacillate between Aragorn as a man of Elrond's race, an elf, and a ranger, and just so typical of him to settle on all of the above. Uh, yeah, essentially, right? He's not exactly an elf, but, but, but related to them, right? And grew up in Rivendell, uh, more than just, uh, more than just a a hanger out, uh, in, uh, Rivendell. Um, but, um... Exactly, James. No accounting for east and west. That's the the hobbits and the rangers, right? The the Shire hobbits and the rangers. So there are the people of Bree looking, uh, looking both directions. It's Bree which is really sort of the heart of hobbit hobbitness, as of course everybody in Bree was a hobbit back in the second phase. Uh, Butterbur was a hobbit. Everybody was a hobbit in the prancing pony. Um, so the imp- and and think about the implications of that, right? Here's Frodo going off on his adventure, and what does he meet? the experienced hobbit, right? He's like this is your life. This is your future, right? Uh he, is he leaving the shire behind? Right? Is he is he turning his back on the shire and giving it up and going there but not coming back again? Well, here's Trotter, right? Who's already walked that road in front of him in his wooden shoes. So, um that was that was the, the there were lots of ways in which Trotter's role in the story was was really interesting and really important, connected to Frodo and to Bilbo, and almost a kind of bridge between them. So to say, nah, no, he's going to be an elf. He's going to be a Rivendell guy, right? Uh, who has come out to find them is a very very different shift. And the idea that he considers having him be an elf who quote pretends to be a ranger, he's not really a ranger, right? Trotter was really a ranger, kind of. Well, he's from the shire, right? But, um, but he's among the rangers anyway. He's sort of uh, culturally, you know, adopted the ranger lifestyle. Um, ranger. The, notice how the word ranger. Um, it seems to mean the the connotation of the term ranger seems to be something like vagabond, right? Like uh, like gypsy kind of lifestyle person, right? Um uh which helps me, I have to say, to understand for a long time um reading the Lord of the Rings as a kid, I never got that. I, it was I was and I mean I was there lots of ways in which I was fairly dense as a child, but uh this was certainly something that I really struggled with as a kid. Um, you know, when when they say things like, I thought he when you know when Frodo says, I thought he was just a ranger, right? Um, or uh when um you know, Butterbird talks about, you know, he's one of them rangers, right? Uh and uh, you know, the way that what that seems sort of the implications of what that seems to me. I never really got that, right? Because uh, you know, I guess I listened too carefully when Gandalf said, you know, but that's just what the Rangers are, right? Uh, you know, so basically in my mind, I'm like, okay, Ranger equals... Numenorian, right? Okay. So then I you know, when I'm when I'm when I'm rereading the book now, um uh, you know, which I generally started doing about, you know, a couple weeks after I finished it, was uh was you know, now I'm in I'm in Brie again and they're like, Oh, you know, I thought he was just a ranger, and that phrase seems to like ceases to even make any sense, right? Uh to me. Um but it's clear that ranger means, you know, uh it means wanderer. It means uh it means a person without a fixed home. Right. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Stephen. I have to admit, I probably was also influenced by the ranger class in Dungeons and Dragons, um, which is also clearly not what Butterbur is talking about, right? Uh, clearly not the association that everybody has uh, with rangers. Uh, so anyway, but but again, the pretends to be a ranger. This stuff has actually kind of uh, uh, reading reading through these this draft version has helped me more fully uh, to uh, 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 sort of internalize what uh, what. The implications of that phrase uh, uh, were. But um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, but we ditched that. And we return to Aragorn. You may remember from Return of the Shadow, uh, Aragorn finally appears in the text... As the name of a horse, <laughs> right? It wasn't a Gandalf's horse, as I recall, was originally named Aragorn, uh, which is, of course, very anticlimactic when you're waiting for Aragorn to, uh, uh, to appear. But uh, now we're, we've, we've, uh, we've left the stable door open. Aragorn is free and no longer a horse. Trotter is a man of Elrond's race, descend- descendant of, struck out at once, Turin, the ancient men of the North. Hang on for a second. Can we just pause for a second? Descendant of Turin, right? I mean, how about that? That is amazing. That is absolutely amazing. Now, okay, a couple things here. First of all, Christopher Tolkien immediately footnotes this. And it's like, Dad was probably made a mistake here, right? Because Turin, of course, had no descendants. So he can't possibly be a descendant of Turin. Well, no, he doesn't. (laughs) but exactly green is like, wait, how? Yeah, exactly. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. When Tolkien wrote that, you know, Christopher says he struck it out at once. And, and, and from the syntax of the sentence, it seems clear that he did, but, um, but I wouldn't put it past Tolkien would not put it past. Tolkien. This was clearly his first impulse right here. Uh, he wants to emphasize that Trotter is a descendant of Turin. That would mean, of course, that he would have to go back and change the Turin story to make a descendant survive in order for uh, Aragorn to be his descendant. I would not put that past Tolkien. He has changed stories for less reason than that uh, before. Um, Now, in the end, of course, he doesn't actually do it. But yes, I actually do think, Carita, that he was briefly, even for just a couple seconds, toying with the idea of retrofitting... Uh, uh tour injury. what like having having the unborn child of Neonor survive somehow? Have her give birth and then commit suicide? I have no idea what that would have looked like. Um, and obviously he didn't get fully. Um, um several of you are suggesting maybe maybe uh Finduilos could have uh, born a child on the sly, but uh, that too would have been a pretty significant change to the story. Uh, anyway, yeah, I don't. I have no idea what that would look like, what what a story where Turin Jr. survives would look like. I have no idea. And obviously, Tolkien did not spend much time thinking about this, as he does, based on the evidence, immediately cross it out and just write the ancient men of the North. But still, that was his impulse. And let me just say, it is perfectly... <laughs> Based on stuff that, you know, I've talked about and conversations I've had with you guys, both, you know, in person and through my sessions and in social media over the years, the consensus kind of among us, right, is that Turin is is, um, troubled, right? I mean... uh, There are very few people for whom Turin is their favorite character, right? I mean, you go to somebody and be like, who's your favorite Tolkien character? Very few modern readers would be like, Turin! Oh, yeah, Turin is the best. But you've got to keep in mind, Turin pretty much was Tolkien's favorite character. I mean, Turin is one of the original characters of Middle-earth. Tolkien loved the Turin story and keeps coming back to the Turin story and telling and retelling and retelling the Turin story. Um, it's kind of alarming, startling to see Turin's name pop up like that. But in a sense, sort of like knowing Tolkien and how much Tolkien loved the Turin story, it's kind of not surprising actually. Um, the, uh, 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 there is this, there is you can't you can't overestimate the importance of the Baron and Luthien story, and we talked about that, of course, a good deal uh, in uh, um, in the Return of the Shadow Class. But there's a sense in which the Turin story is even more pervasive in Tolkien's imagination than Baron and Luthien. I think that Baron and Luthien increases as time goes on, but um, but Turin is, I mean, absolutely right up there. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Several of you are commenting that, uh, you know, it's uh, Tolkien loved Turin so much he didn't seem to do him any favors. It's the tragical nature of his story that he loved. It's one of the things that he loved about Turin was his tragical story. Um, so I don't think that he um, that Tolkien was necessarily going to change the tragical nature uh, of uh, Turin's story. But but again, it doesn't shock me at all uh, that he was, his initial impulse was making the link uh, uh, back to Turin. Um, okay. 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 Um, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, sorry, I'll carry on here. Trotter is a man of Elrond's race of descent, uh, of, uh, of Elrond's race, descendant of, struck out at once, Turin, the ancient men of the north, and one of Elrond's household. He was a hunter and wanderer. He became a friend of Bilbo. He knew Gandalf. He was intrigued by Bilbo's story and found Gollum. When Gandalf went off on the last perilous quest, really to find out about Black Riders and whether the Dark Lord would attack the Shire, he, uh, that is Gandalf, and changed to Gandalf and Bilbo, arranged with Trotter, real name, and then there are a bunch of unfinished names, Right. So this seems to be him deciding what the real name of Trotter is gonna be, right? Bara nah, nah. Uh Ro no, no. Dam no no, no. Aragorn, right? Um Barra here. Damrod, maybe? Was that where we were going with those names? I'm not sure. I'm not sure what to do with Ro exactly. Um, but uh he decides Aragorn, son of Aramir. Okay. Uh So, okay, he arranged with Trotter. So, Gandalf and Bilbo arranged with Trotter to go towards the Shire and keep a lookout on the road from east. Gandalf was going south. He gives Aragorn a letter to Frodo. Aragorn pretends he is a ranger and hangs about Bree. So, notice here, there seems to be a genuine ranger class. Like, there are a bunch of, you know, um, uh, just people who live off in the wild, right? So, there are a bunch of people who really are rangers in that sense. And Aragorn just tries to blend in among them. Um, so, uh, okay, okay. Uh, that's his... That's so, so the Rangers are not the Men of the West yet, right? Um, there are a bunch of Rangers and he's just, he's just, you know, it's his cover story. Okay, he also warns... He, Trotter, Aragorn, also warns Tom Bombadil. Um, okay, Reason of Wooden Shoes no need in this case because aragorn is a man hence there is no need for gandalf the catch of food at weathertop is aragorn's aragorn steers them to weathertop as a good lookout so we see the ripple effect right okay if he's not if trotter isn't a hobbit right if he is a, if he is a, a man if he's a human descendant Uh, of the ancient men of the North and of Elrond's race and stuff. Uh, Friends with Bilbo, friends with Gandalf, and in it with Gandalf here from the beginning, we have this ripple effect of stuff, right? Wooden shoes, goodbye wooden shoes, right? And by the way, remember, that's where Trotter got his name from because you could hear him trotting down the road in his wooden shoes. Why was he wearing wooden shoes in the first place? Well, the story we finally got behind the wooden shoes was that he had been tortured, Right. He had been captured uh, by Sauron in Barad-dûr and been tortured by him, and his feet were mutilated, and that's why he doesn't go around barefoot like other hobbits. That's why he wears wooden shoes. In fact, there was even the brief suggestion that maybe they were not shoes at all, but in fact wooden prosthetic feet, because he had his feet amputated uh, during his torture. And Gandalf rescues him uh, from uh, um, from the from the the dungeons uh, of uh, Sauron. So, okay, <laughs> yeah, Stephen says, yeah, what kind of man would wear wooden shoes, right? And, well, the point is, you don't have to draw attention to it, right? Because, like, the fact that he's wearing shoes is not going to be remarkable. It was remarkable when he's a hobbit. It's not a remarkable anymore, so we can ditch the wooden shoes, and I don't think any of us is gonna, are going to miss his wooden shoes. Um, and, uh, okay, so uh, that... I'm, I'm not sure what there isn't any need uh, for Gandalf to do there in that second paragraph, but the catch of food is Aragorn's. It was Gandalf's originally, right? He left a bunch behind for them. That was, that was, that dated back to the party caravan, right? Um, but now the, it's Aragorn being prudent, right? And being sort of in, uh, uh, in, well, not control of, but, uh, uh, you know, sort of comfortable in this whole region. But how could Trotter miss Gandalf? What delayed Gandalf? Black Rider or other hunters? Treebeard. Aragorn did not miss Gandalf and arranged tryst on Weathertop. Right? So, um, how could they, this is still before he decides, before Tolkien decides, Gandalf is not going to be ahead of them, right? Um. But he wants to, he's trying to, so back when he thinks that Gandalf makes a debris before uh, uh, Frodo does, when he's still following in that path, uh, he's asking, how can that be? It, surely they would have talked. Trotter and Gandalf would have talked, right? Um, and so he decides, no, he did. They did talk and they arranged the tryst at Weathertop. So they're supposed to meet up at Weathertop. That's why they're going to Weathertop, because they're they're planning to meet Gandalf there. Um at the end is written very emphatically and twice underlined no odo right uh, now this is kind of an inside joke this was one of the most entertaining elements for me anyway most entertaining elements of the return of the shadow uh, is the uh, persistence the uh the the indefatigable persistence of the character of uh, odo who was often odo bulger sometimes odo took. Um, uh, sometimes Odo Boffin, wasn't um, uh, <laughs> anyway, he too? But anyway, Odo kept getting cut out and kept getting brought back. And uh, uh, finally, so the role that he was playing, the relevance here is that Odo Odo's last role... Was to meet up with Gandalf in Crickhollow, and Gandalf brought him along, and so uh, he was the he was a decoy. Uh, he was like the fake Frodo, uh, and they were trying to convince Gandalf was. Le- Remember, Gandalf was leaving fake messages uh, at Bree, uh, trying to convince everybody that he was riding along with Mister Baggins and taking off right, so that the Black Riders would come chasing after him, and that they did. The Black Riders did capture Odo, and he has to go rescue Odo. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, um, so he was along originally, uh, on the Riven, on Gandalf's journey to Rivendell, because he was serving as a decoy the whole way. So that seems to be the relevance there, um, that he, uh, he's decided, no, Gandalf is not traveling with a hobbit here when he meets up with, uh, with Trotter. Okay. And yeah, um, Brandon, I think that the fact that I've been that I started watching Deep Space Nine after I started doing the Return of the Shadow class has just made it funnier. Actually, um, okay. The possible tale of Peregrine Boffin. So we have this idea which might make all of us breathe a sigh of relief about how you know Trotter is actually going to turn out to be a man and a descendant of Elrond, you know, a, 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 a you know kin of Elrond and everything, and that's great. Um, but then. Tolkien hasn't made up his mind yet, right? It's not as simple as all that. He decides to go back to Trotter. Right, to Trotter the Hobbit. Alternative function for Trotter. Trotter is Peregrine Boffin that Bilbo took away with him, or who ran off with Bilbo. But this rather duplicates things, unless you cut out all of Frodo's friends. So now... Poor Odo. Right? Now we're going to cut Mary and everybody. If Trotter is Peregrine Boffin, then Bilbo must go off quietly, and Peregrine must simply vanish about the same time. Right? So, and Christopher's theory, which seems to me pretty plausible, if Bilbo went off in his travels with one of his young friends, Peregrine Boffin, right, who turns out to be Trotter, then we have a mere duplication, right when uh, frodo's friends go off with him. the departure of the conspirators is no longer quite as special, right so uh, he doesn't want to do that, so he's trying to figure out how can I make that but not 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 parallel it too too closely that's why I think it would require cutting all of frodo's friends, Stephen uh because he didn't want to just have the same exact pattern again um but uh, anyway, I'm sure happy he didn't go that way. But so, he, so he even starts a narrative, right? Here's what it would look like. There was peace in Hobbiton for many years. Gandalf came seldom and then very quietly and mainly to visit Bilbo. He seemed to have given up trying to persuade even young Tooks to go off on mad adventures out of the Shire. Then suddenly things began to happen. Bilbo Baggins disappeared again. That is hardly exact. He walked off without saying a word except to Gandalf, and to his nephews, Peregrine and Frodo, it may be supposed. It was a great blow to Frodo. He found Bilbo had left everything he possessed to himself and Peregrine, but Peregrine also disappeared, leaving a will in which his share... And then it cuts off there. Okay. um, So... <laughs> Karita thinks that Peregrine vanishing at the same time as Bilbo looks real bad, right? karina I think it looks even worse that, uh, you know, Frodo's like, ah, Bilbo has mysteriously disappeared, leaving his worldly possessions divided between me and my cousin Peregrine. Oh, Peregrine has also <laughs> vanished mysteriously. I, Frodo, am now the sole heir of Bilbo Baggins. Right? It starts to sound a little sketchy at that point. Um, exactly uh, yeah, <laughs> Frodo in the conservatory with the candlesticks, says Stephen. Um, yeah, so um. Uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm glad we didn't end up going in that direction but, uh, but, but, but we can see uh, nevertheless the idea of having uh, Trotter still be a hobbit still be closely connected with Frodo and family um, you know, and closely parallel to him in fact directly parallel right I mean these are the two nephews of Bilbo um, uh, so their careers are exactly in parallel though not marching in step obviously he still hasn't let that idea go completely. <laughs> James says, and Frodo winks when asked of their whereabouts. <laughs> Boy, does that put a sinister twist on that, doesn't it? Oh, man. Okay. This is uh, from the slip of paper which Tolkien hilariously titled Final Decisions. I love Christopher's very gentle dig, right? Uh, When uh, when, uh, Christopher says, uh, with the highly optimistic title, Final Decisions. One. General plot as at present. Bilbo vanished at party, but all that chapter will have to be reduced, especially the Sackville Baggins business. Begin with a conversation between Bilbo and Frodo? 2. Gandalf not expected by Frodo. Gandalf had not been seen for two to three years. Frodo grew restless and went off, although Gandalf had really not wished him to go till he returned. Um, so here we have, you know, in this, uh, in this conception, which is still not the last conception, not the fourth phase conception, right? But as he's working this out at the beginning, um, the idea of Frodo's departure as being totally independent right? Um, totally unconnected from Gandalf. So not only is Gandalf not told him to leave right away, um, and Frodo's delaying, Frodo is just going off completely on his own, and Gandalf is totally winging it. When Bilbo went, Gandalf not sure of nature of Ring. Bilbo's longevity made him suspicious, and he induced Bilbo not to take Ring with him. Bilbo had no idea that Ring was dangerous. Hence, simplify all Bilbo's motives and remove the difficulty of his burdening Frodo with it. Again, you may recall, we talked about that where Tolkien was clearly anxious about, the. you know, back in the third phase, Bilbo knew a fair bit about the significance of the Ring and what a burden it was and what it can, what it was already starting to do to him. Um, but Tolkien was clearly uncomfortable about the fact that Bilbo, knowing all that, would be like, well, Frodo, it's your problem now, right? So he wanted to um, um, uh, he 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 wanted to uh, reduce that element So and this requires significant revision, right? Simplify all of Bilbo's motives. Make Bilbo and Gandalf also more ignorant at the beginning of the story. Um... Frodo's friends are Mariotic Brandybuck and Peregrine Boffin, called Mary and Perry. Only. No Odo. Peregrine drops off at Crickhollow. Mary at Rivendell. Sam only goes on to end. Love that, right? Uh, you know, so so it's 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 just the four of them, right? We don't have five. We've reduced it to four because we've ditched Odo finally, right? Um uh Peregrine is gonna stay behind. You know, Perry is going to stay behind at Crick Hollow. Mary is going to stay behind at Rivendell. Can I just say I'm glad they're not Perry and Mary? Um... (laughs) Josiah, that's a great idea. Uh, uh, Josiah suggests No Odo should be a a Mythgard t-shirt. Love that idea. I totally want a No Odo t-shirt. Um... Yeah, yeah that that absolutely that absolutely needs to happen. Karita uh, thinks that Mary and Perry uh, sounds like a clothing line for kids. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Very good. Very good. Um, aha. Yeah, Nancy. Um, uh, Nancy points out that although Tolkien has called this final decisions, uh, he still says general plot as at present. Right, Uh, as Nancy says, he knew. Right, he he wasn't really fooling himself here. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, so let's see what uh where where were we? Oh yes, that's right. Number five. Trotter is not a Hobbit, but a real ranger who has gone to live in Rivendell after much wandering. Cut out shoes. Right. Okay. The wooden shoes are right out. Right. But notice here. So now he's not a Rivendell dude in this version. He's not a Rivendell dude pretending. You know, uh, with a cover story of being a ranger. Right. Now he's an, a real ranger who ends up in Rivendell. Uh, similar story, but but backwards. Is this guy still an heir? Right. You know, descendant of uh, of uh, you know Elrond's family. I wonder. I don't really know. Um. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But you can't get rid of Odo, man. You just can't do it. Penciled emendations were made to four and five. To four was first added, Peregrine stays at Hobbiton and tells Gandalf. This was struck out, and the first sentence of the note was changed to read, Mary's friends are Mariotic Brandybuck and Ham... That is, Hamilcar, Bolger, and Faramond Took, called Mary, Ham, and Far." With a further addition, Ham drops off at Crick Hollow, but is picked up by Gandalf and used as a decoy. Thus, once more, Odo Bolger will bounce back, but now under the name of Hamilcar of that ilk. Hamilcar has appeared hitherto only in a note dated August 1939, near the very end of the Return of the Shadow, where it is proposed that Odo be changed to Hamilcar or Fredegar. Peregrine Boffin disappears again, but only temporarily. Okay, uh, so uh, Odo, as, as Christopher Tolkien somewhat triumphantly points out, Odo, in fact, does stick around. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, yeah, and of course he survives. Odo is, is, is Fatty Bolger essentially. Uh, I mean, he's, 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 uh, he's, he's, he still has to go through his Hamilcar stage, right? Though you notice the fat joke is already there, right? He's hammy. You know, uh ham or hammy Bulger, which is kind of like fatty. Um, but um uh but yeah, yeah. Um yeah. Brianna thinks that Hamilcar is a pretty boss name. Uh uh yeah, even if it means a hobbit goes by the two on the nose nickname of ham. Yeah, exactly. Uh Hamilcar is cool. I like Hamilcar. Uh <laughs> It's really, it's really kind of fun. Steven is now suggesting that maybe Odo was just Tolkien's default placeholder name. Uh, maybe, maybe. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay. Let's talk about the ring. Okay, this is from the. This is all from the fourth. Phase narrative. And so here in particular, I'm looking at some of the passages that Tolkien rewrote. Um, so, some, some of the ones that Christopher Tolkien gives us at length here. Um, notice so similarities and differences. Notice, show, tell me what's significant about this scene. You have still got the ring in your pocket, said the wizard. So I have, and my will and all the other documents too, cried Bilbo. I had better give them to you to deliver to Frodo. That will be safest. He held out the envelope, but just as Gandalf was about to take it, Bilbo's hand jerked, and the envelope fell on the floor before Bilbo could pick it up. An odd look passed over the hobbit's face, almost like anger. Uh, sorry, I think I skipped a bit. Uh, then, And then Gandalf grabs it before Bilbo could pick it up. An odd look passed over the hobbit's face, almost like anger. Suddenly it gave way to a look of relief and a smile. Well, that's that, he said. Now I'm off. Okay. Um... What do you What do you notice here? <laughs> Laura Burkholtz is suggesting that uh, clearly my next car should be named Hamilcar. Uh, that's pretty good, actually. It's pretty good. Um, what do you notice? What do you notice? Well, the big thing, and of course Christopher points this out, right? The big thing is no fight, right? Um, nobody gets angry, right? There's no quarrel between Bilbo and Gandalf. So, the influence of the ring is present. We see it in the jerking of his hand back, right? You know, Bilbo's still having a, a hard time controlling his limbs, but it's not, and, and therefore presumably his will, right? Um, but he doesn't, uh, he doesn't come into conflict with Gandalf over it, right? So, no confrontation, um, it's a a, a big uh, um, a big deal, right? What else? Yes, Brian Gandalf is willing to take the ring from Frodo and not reluctant to hold it, right? So we have the ring is the ring is dangerous, right? We see Bilbo struggles more the same conversation, this conversation between Bilbo and Gandalf, remember it happened in the third phase, but it happened at the bottom of the hill. He left. Bilbo left the house, right, and had this conversation with, with Gandalf. This stuff about like, you know, his hand and not being able to uh, leave it behind and that kind of thing, That's that's new here, right? So we see Bilbo more, in one sense, more heavily influenced by the ring. And yet, it's still nothing, it's still nowhere near where it's going to get right? Um, yes, Deborah. as you say, Bilbo's able to leave the ring, but he feels a twinge. It's only a twinge. Um, he has a twinge of anger when he sees Gandalf pick it up, but it's 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 just a twinge. It doesn't lead to any trouble, even briefly between them, right? And, of course, Brian, as you were pointing out, he is willing Gandalf is willing to hold it. It doesn't seem to be a big deal, right? Um, Gandalf picks it up and puts it back on the mantelpiece. So Gandalf does, in the published text, touch the envelope in which the ring is, but he's certainly not going to hang out with it for a couple hours, holding it and sitting it with it like in his lap, right? So the ring is dangerous, but we don't yet have that, uh, you know, "Don't tempt me" kind of thing with, you know, Gandalf being unwilling to. Uh, to 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 receive it at all, um, he wouldn't accept it being given to him. Yeah, we don't we don't we don't see that, and that seems to me uh, a really important um, element, um, and shows us kind of where the ring rates here, right? How dangerous is the ring? Much more than it was, and yet still not where it's going to get to, right? Um, that has not yet fully emerged. Um, okay. Another interesting point about the ring. Remember where the ring started? Right? When we first... When it was first, a, you know, a ring of power. um, It was one of bunches of rings. In fact, it seemed likely that it was one of those... One of the many rings that just got chucked off by the... Because, you know, that's how it happened. Sauron just, like, made a whole bunch of them. Right? And he, like... Just, like, strewed them around. Um... Because you know somebody like an elf would find it and he'd wear the ring and and then he'd become a wraith right and then he would chuck it the wraith would chuck it and then somebody else would find it you know uh, uh, so it's like the multiplication of of wraiths right uh, through this I mean so it's it's one of those kinds of rings right so it's dangerous because it you know can wraithify you but it's uh, it's not you know it wasn't unique. Um, and then we had like this, this, you know, increasing significance of the ring. The ring was, you know, it's it's Sauron's ring. Like he really, he really wants it back, right? He, you know, he put a recall on that one. he really wants it back. It's a special ring to him. It was not until very late in The Return of the Shadow, um, right after he finished the third phase, and in his, uh, his, his concepts about what to change moving forward, that the idea of the ruling ring finally came into play. So we have just gotten uh, to the concept of the ruling ring um, at the end of the Return of the Shadow. Now now look. The first part of the conversation between Gandalf and Frodo now takes a great step towards that in the Fellowship of the Ring. So this is, of course, from Chapter 2. But Gandalf as yet says nothing of the making of rings in Eregion long ago. Nor does he speak here of the great rings, the rings of power. Though his words are the same as in the Fellowship of the Ring, they apply only to the ring in Frodo's possession. Thus he says, those who keep this ring do not die, etc., His account of Bilbo's knowledge of and feeling about his ring are very much as in The Fellowship of the Ring, but he says here that Bilbo knew, of course, that it made one invisible if it encircled any part of the body. Love that, right? Uh, So you could wear it as a toe ring, and it would make you invisible, too. I guess if you, you know, uh, like, stuck your tongue through it, uh, it would also make you invisible, and I love that. Um, But, uh, anyway, okay, so... Karita, I don't know why the one ring was plain. Why, d- why it doesn't have a gem. Why it isn't super fancy. I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. I've never understood that either. Um, uh, if I had to guess, this would be my guess, Karita. Um, the rest of them were made to deceive others, right? Uh, but the ruling ring is uh, just for him, right? It's not, it's not. It's you know, he's not wearing it for bling, right? Uh, that's my uh, that's my theory. Sauron was a modest guy, Arthur says. Yeah, probably so. Um, okay, anyway. Um, <laughs> Stephen says Sauron was trying to find a jewel worthy of it, but the dwarves wouldn't give up the Arkenstone. Uh, yeah, big ol' huge Arkenstone on it. Anyway, um, notice the significance of this. Tolkien has swung back. It seems almost entirely the other direction. We had this idea of a, uh, like the hierarchy of rings, that there were great rings and there were lesser and there were lesser rings. That too is a, a, a much later idea, like the ruling ring concept. Now Tolkien seems to be backpedaling even further from that. Uh, f- so far from where we were back in the second phase, back when the story was first beginning to unfold, and this was just one of those magic rings, right? Which, of course, is carrying over from The Hobbit. In The Hobbit, there are bunches of magic, you know, it's like, hey, it's one of those magic rings you heard about in stories, which is cool, right? I bet you never thought you'd have one. Um, But there's nothing singular about it, right? Right. And that's where, so that's where Tolkien begins. That's where his mind starts uh, when he begins making the story. Now he's gone in completely the opposite direction, right? It's like there aren't any, this is the only great ring, right? So this ring is totally different from any other ring. Um, think of all those things that he says, that Gandalf says about the great rings in that part of the conversation. Um, and that idea, you know, like that uh, those that those who keep this ring do not die, right? All of that stuff is just about this particular ring. So that's kind of remarkable right we have so having conceived the idea of the ruling ring he seems to want to make it even more and more special right more and more singular um but oh no Jennifer there are still other rings uh like the 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 black riders were were wraithified, yeah as well but but it's he had had the idea of the great rings and the lesser rings, and there being a bunch of great rings, but this the the ruling one, um, the ruling ring among them. Um, now it seems like that's just just that one ring and the lesser rings. It seems, and so it's presumably the lesser rings that corrupted uh, the ring wraiths. I don't think the concept of ring ringwraithery is going anywhere. I don't think that that's implied uh, as being uh, destroyed. But notice, he doesn't talk about Ereinion long ago, right? that concept isn't there. Um, Which, again, removing that whole historical element from the rings, right? Without that historical element, again, this just becomes... And then one day, the Dark Lord decides, I need a really powerful ring, and then he loses it. Um, Yeah, yeah. Exactly, Stephen. Uh, Stephen says, so originally Sauron was giver of gifts to pretty much anyone he came across. Later on, he was giver of gifts to 19 specific people. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And Stephen, this seems to me to be a middle ground between those things. Right here, he is both, right? Oh, That is, he's a giver of great rings to nobody, but he's a giver of lesser rings, presumably to everybody that he meets, right? Um, like, the, that's where the ring ringwraiths came from. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh interesting. Matthew Duke suggests that uh, he always assumed that Sauron had contemplated the possibility that the ring might be lost and wished it to be mistaken for a lesser ring. Possibly. Possibly. I mean I don't know. I doubt he was really actively anticipating that the ring would be lost, but perhaps perhaps um Yeah. Yeah. Um Okay. All right. Let's keep going. I just remember the white wizards and Gandalf's meeting with the white wizards in The Hobbit. Here's Gandalf's explanation. Let me see. It was after the white council in the south that I first began to give serious thoughts to Bilbo's ring. What was it, Gandalf, that made you think about Bilbo's ring after your white council in the south? There was much talk of rings at the council. Even wizards have much to learn as long as they live, however long that may be. There are many sorts of ring, of course. Some are no more than toys, though dangerous ones to my mind, and not difficult to contrive if you go in for such things. They are not in my line. But what I heard made me think a good deal, though I said nothing to Bilbo. All seemed well with him. I thought he was safe enough from any evil of that sort. I was nearly right, but not quite right. Perhaps I should have been more suspicious, and have found out the truth sooner than I did. Yet if I had, I don't know what else could have been done. Um... Doesn't it sound like the White Council in the South was is basically like a continuing education program for wizards, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, even wizards have much to learn as long as they live, right? That's presumably that's why he went to the council, right? So there was like a panel discussion uh, by some of the wizards who did go in for that sort of thing, right, who are, who are into ring-making and stuff. Um, exactly, WizardCon, yes, it was WizardCon. Um, uh, yeah, exactly, Nancy, they were having a symposium, that's just, uh, that's just exactly what was happening. Um, uh, (laughs) yeah, Nancy says, next week, Palantirian, why we don't have them now, uh, yeah, yeah, um <laughs> it was sometime after the cocktail mixer and before the the beard tending workshop says brendan coffee yeah I, 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 exactly that's precisely the tone i got from this uh it's 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 i i find this hilarious but again notice this is a transition um the significance of the White Council, it's clearly not there yet. This is just a gathering of wizards, doing what wizards do, right? Let's talk about lore. Let's uh, let's collaborate. Let's share lore. So Gandalf, not knowing much about rings and magic rings, decides to attend a, a magic ring panel, right? Being led by wizards who go in for that sort of thing. Um, but... Um, uh, you know so so and having learned some stuff right having uh having uh, uh gotten his continuing education units in ring lore uh that exactly deborah uh it was just she was just saying the same thing, having gotten his c e units uh in uh in ring lore that year uh it made him think, oh gosh, you know i mean look at that the immediate application of his continuing education units right, just like they drew it up um yeah uh pretty um uh Pretty, pretty cool. And, Karita, you know, you make a strong point. is arguing that we should probably put the quotation even wizards have much to learn as long as they live. We should probably put that on our diplomas somewhere, shouldn't we? Yeah. Yeah. And, Curtis, make a note. That should go on our website somewhere. That's totally we do that. Absolutely. That's too good. I agree. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, good. Josiah, great observation. Very careful reading. Um, Uh, notice, even wizards may have much, even wizards have much to learn as long as they live, however long that may be. Josiah points out, Gandalf seems remarkably uncertain regarding the lifespan of wizards, right? Yeah, he does, doesn't he? Um, I mean, I guess, you know, like they die, they don't all die of natural causes, right? So some of them live longer than others. It's not necessarily just about their longevity, but... um, but anyway it's um it's 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 pretty it's it's pretty important so okay um but i wanted to do more than just make jokes about the wizard conference um we can see the fact that, i mean gandalf uh notice the question the question that so many people have um when they read chapter 2 right uh we talked we spent a lot of time talking about this when we were doing this and exploring the Lord of the Rings how much did gandalf know and when did he find it out and why didn't he tell frodo earlier right those are all questions that are really important we see this is basically like gandalf's first attempt to answer that question right how did you how long have you known this gandalf right and why didn't you tell frodo and it's interesting where he gets to right uh is that um Perhaps I should have been more suspicious and have found out the truth sooner than I did, yet if I had, I don't know what else I could have done, what else could have been done, right? What else could have been done is an interesting use of the passive, right? As, you know, it's like it wasn't just about him, right? Like, but what else could anybody else? What What else could anybody else have done? Um, yeah, and interesting, Mandy has a really uh, interesting observation about the ring, Um says that, uh, you know, that, that about the plainness of the ring and about uh, the most corrupting evils often being the most subtle, uh and so that, you know, she thinks that's kind of brilliant from the perspective of psychology you know, to think about the, the subtlety of the ring, it doesn't look garish, it's not uh, um, it's not flamboyant right, and so therefore it's more subtle in it's corruption, um yeah, yeah anyway, okay, sorry um <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Brendan. I love I Brendan's... This is a Brendan's summary of Gandalf's statements here. We talked a lot about rings. Ring, rings can be toys. Bilbo seemed fine. I was basically right. Couldn't be helped. Beating around the bush much? Yeah, he is, and he still is, in the published Fellowship of the Ring. Um... But uh, but we can see that he's he's already beating around the same bush that he's going to be beating around. Gandalf is going to be much more clued in later on, right? Gandalf and everybody else at the White Council is going to be much more clued in. Um, but, of course, this is ultimately where the whole business about Saruman's, uh, you know, uh, uh, master class on ring lore, right, uh, is, is ultimately comes from. Um, you know, Saruman is not there other than, you know, uh, uh, people who go in for such things, right? Wizards that go in for such things is our first kind of glimpse, but um, but, you know, I don't uh, it's hard to say that this is really the the germ of the Saruman. I mean, notice all of the the disparate elements that are kind of floating around that are going to come together into Saruman, right? The leader of the the Black Riders was a wizard, right? Um, So there is an evil wizard who's in charge of the bad guys. There's, uh, there's Some wizards who go in for ring-making, right? And who give panel discussions on ring lore at wizard conferences. Uh, There is... um, um, Oh, shoot, what was the other one I just had? I forgot... There was a third element that I was, oh, uh, the capture, right uh, Gandalf is delayed, right and there is someone who is more powerful than he who uh, holds on to him or besieges him right and prevents him from returning. you know all of these elements that are um, that are floating around um, and not at all sort of congealed um, yeah, yeah, exactly James was reminding me of the giant tree beard exactly. Um, yeah, no, Stephen. I think Gandalf clearly does not go in for such things. He attended the panel because he doesn't like he. he this was he was wanting to learn, right? It was wanting to learn about something new, um, uh, so that's why he, you know, because it's uh, uh, even wizards have to learn, uh, have much to learn as long as they live. And notice the relevance to this passage, right? Why didn't he know about Bilbo's ring in the first place? As soon as he saw Bilbo had his magic ring, made him invisible, right? Why did he know right away? Answer? Gandalf didn't go in for rings, right? How was he supposed to know, right? One wizard can't know all lore, can he, right? And so it wasn't until later on, you know, he was at this conference and he was learning about rings. And he was like, hey, hmm, gosh, wow, what do you think about that? Um, in you know, reflecting on that. And, I, and boy, you know, and that conference was like the same year that Bilbo found his ring. I mean, wow, right? Um, uh, Jennifer asks, what did Gandalf give a, give a paper on at WizardCon? And uh, clearly, smokes and, and lights, right? I and mean, that's what, so smoke, she, she was joking about the art of smoke rings. Totally plausible, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Brandon Minnick says, uh, you know, he's, maybe Gandalf could ask that question from the crowd, right? So hypothetically, uh, if a friend of mine comes across a ring that makes him disappear, what bad things might happen? You know, hypothetically. Um, yeah, yeah. Gandalf is simply ignorant. He's not c- covered this lore before, so he's, he's got to learn it from scratch. That's the simple answer. To why he doesn't know sooner, why he didn't figure it out sooner, because he didn't know. Now, so notice by the time we get to the published Fellowship of the Ring, this is off the table, right? Um, the 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 Wizard con is very different. Uh, Gandalf is very different, um, but this is still where we are in uh, in phase four, and I think that's really kind of fun. Um, <laughs> James Oakley suggests uh, Gandalf shows up to give his keynote talk on Hobbit lore. To an empty auditorium, <laughs> nobody goes in for Hobbit lore, James. Uh, exactly, exactly. Um, very good, very good. Oh yes, Arthur, you're right. He could give a useful talk on how to open secret doors. Uh, he, he, you know, he 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 knows every uh, 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 every word and charm that was used for that purpose uh, in all of the languages of the West. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, cool. All right, all right. So, um, focusing on Gollum now. Still thinking about the ring, but focusing on Gollum. This is really, really fun. This is Tolkien retconning in high gear. But why did Gollum start the riddle game? Or think of giving up the ring at all? Asked Frodo. Now, let us remind ourselves, and most of you will remember this, but let's just make sure we are all on the same page, right? Um, remember, The Hobbit has not been revised, Right? We are dealing with the original first edition of The Hobbit, and in the first edition text of The Hobbit, Gollum suggests giving up the ring. Um, Gollum puts the ring up as stakes in the riddle game. If you win, if, you know, if it wins, right, then we gives it a present. Right? That was not a fake story that Bilbo made up. That was the real story, and the only story that was. So, um Tolkien's first impulse of course it's always Tolkien's first impulse is to accept the story um that he's already written and fit it in right let's let's retcon this so that's the fundamental issue that we see going on here um and Frodo's question is an excellent question right why did Gollum start the riddle game or think of giving it up Wouldn't giving up the ring have been inconceivable to Gollum? Gandalf's answer, because he was altogether miserable, and yet could not make up his wretched mind. Don't you realize that he had possessed the ring for ages, and the torment was becoming unendurable? He was so wretched that he knew he was wretched, and had at last understood what caused it. At last, Gollum knew the ring was making him miserable. There was nothing more to find out, nothing left but the darkness, nothing to do but furtive eating and regretful remembering. Half his mind wanted above all to be rid of the ring, even if the loss killed him. But he hated parting with it as much as keeping it. He wanted to hand it to someone else, and to make him wretched too. Then why didn't he give it to the goblins? Gollum would not have found that amusing. The goblins were already beastly and were already beastly and miserable. And anyway, he was afraid of them. Naturally, he had no fancy for an invisible gol- goblin in the tunnels, but when Bilbo turned up, half his mind saw that he had a marvelous chance, and the other half was angry and frightened and was thinking how to trap and eat Bilbo. So he tried the riddle game, which might serve—sorry, uh, typo—which might serve either purpose. It would decide the question for him like tossing up. Very Hobbit-like, I call that. But of course, if it had really come to the point of handing the ring over, he would have immediately desired it terribly and have hated Bilbo fiercely. It was lucky for Bilbo that things were arranged otherwise. This is amazing. This is my, uh, favorite moment. Okay, the Frodo's dream stuff is pretty cool. But this was my favorite part of this whole chapter. Um... Uh the explanation of the riddle game. Uh, this is really compelling- I find this totally compelling, right? In fact, you notice what he's doing. He is imagining Gollum divided in two minds, right? We take this for granted, right? Gollum arguing with himself, the two sides of Gollum fighting back and forth. Um, Peter Jackson obviously really highlighted this in the film. Um, but it was not always so. An argument that I tried to make in my Hobbit book was that Gollum, as we meet him in The Hobbit, we don't see that. We don't see, you know, the Smeagol versus the Gollum side of him arguing back and forth with each other. Um, We see him talking to himself, but that's not how he talks to himself. Um, uh, You can kind of see some sort of characterization between the two. I'm I'm thinking particular of the debate that Bilbo overhears when Bilbo is invisible and Gollum runs runs past him in the tunnel, and he overhears Gollum talking to himself and eventually deciding that Bilbo must really know the way out and he's going to go up to the exit. Um... So, yeah, that that in that conversation, this is not like the good guy and the bad guy talking. It's not like you know the the one who, who which retains memory of bright and happy things and the other uh, which is entirely corrupted and and uh, and a slave of the ring. That is not at all what we see in those two uh, sides. This seems to be this draft right here seems to me to be the origin of that concept. The concept that there is the the Smeagol side and the Gollum side of Gollum. Part of him wants to be free. Wants to give up the ring. Knows that he's wretched. Knows that his life is terrible. And wants out. And that part of him says, I'm going to give the... I'm going to... Sees Bilbo and says, oh my gosh. It's a godsend opportunity. Right? He can't just chuck the ring away. And he wouldn't do it anyway. But he can't anyhow, because it's not safe. Right? He can't give it to a goblin. What's he supposed to do with it? right? And then, look. Here's a hobbit. right? Here's this outsider who's come in. He could give him the ring and get rid of it that way. right? But he knows himself well enough to know that he's not strong enough to give it up. So I'm going to propose a game. We're going to play a riddle game. And if I lose, then I have to give it up fair and square, right? I'd lose it fair and square and I have to give it up. Because he really wants to give it up, but he doesn't think he has the strength just to do it, right? He doesn't have the strength to throw it away. He doesn't even have the strength just to give it away. But but if he backs himself into a corner, right? with Because of the rules of the riddle game that you can't cheat, uh, you know, nobody would cheat at the riddle game, then, okay, then we could do it. Um. But the other half of him doesn't want to give it up the other half of him does is is still desires the ring right and wants to get rid of bilbo because it knows that that weak part of his mind wants to give up the ring and it wants to shut that door right it wants to cut off that path so uh he uh he that's the other half of the game right if i win i eat you right and so he's going to he's going to ta- he's he's going to let the game decide and that is um Nancy's asking, "Why is that very hobbit-like?" I don't think it's the indecision that he's saying is hobbit-like. Um, it's the sort of simple and practical and slightly whimsical solution to his dilemma, right? To say, "We'll play a game and see who wins, and I will let that determine the outcome." Again, it's not about um, it's not about indecisiveness. Exactly, it's about. Um, uh, letting the game determine the outcome, putting himself in the hands of the game. That's the thing that seems to strike Gandalf as particularly Hobbit-like. Let's toss up. Let's f- let's flip a coin. That's the kind of thing that a Hobbit would do according to Gandalf, right? You have an important decision to make, flip a coin. And then abide by the consequences, right? Um, apparently that is kind of uh, is kind of uh, um hobbit-like, right? Okay. Um... Exactly, Stephen. Ultimately, he's going to leave it up to fate, right? Um... Yeah. Yeah. Um... It was lucky for Bilbo that things were arranged otherwise, right? As Gandalf explicitly alludes to, uh, uh, to fate. Um... Yeah. Um, Brianna says that this idea of Gollum surrendering the ring didn't completely vanish. If you think of it as an idea transferring to the ring itself, it was no longer Gollum's idea for the ring to leave, but the ring's idea to leave him. Right, but this characterization of Gollum goes away. Like, there's... there's In the published text, there's 0% of Gollum's mind. Oh, well, that's not quite fair. I was about to say there's 0% of, the, of Gollum's mind that, that wanted to get rid of the ring, right? Gandalf still says in the published text that he hates the ring most of all, right? He hates it and loves it. So that division, the hatred and love of the ring, is still there. But that portion of his mind, which is actively planning, contriving, to give the ring away and get rid of it, that is what really seems to, to go. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. And then this, oh, love this. All the same, I have always thought that the strangest thing about Bilbo's whole adventure was his finding the ring like that, just putting his hand on it in the dark. There was something mysterious in that. I think more than one power was at work. Now, remember, Gandalf has just implied that it was lucky for Bilbo that matters were arranged otherwise, right? So uh, there's, something mis- there's more than one power at work, for Bilbo's sake, because if Bilbo, if Gollum still had the ring, and then Bilbo had won the ring, then Gollum would have to give it, which of course would be impossible, right, because he wouldn't be able to ask the what, is, what, what, what do I have in my pocket question, but anyway, in theory if he had won the riddle game and Gollum had been supposed to give him the ring, then things would have gotten nasty, right, so um, he's already said it was lucky for Bilbo that things were arranged otherwise but that's not what he's saying here it's not only what he's saying here the ring was trying to get back to its master. It had ruined Gollum and could make no further use of him. He was too small and mean. It had already slipped from one owner's hand and betrayed him to death. It now left Gollum, and that would probably have proved Gollum's death if the finder had not been the most unlikely creature imaginable, a Baggins all the way from the Shire. But behind all that, there was something at work behind, beyond any design of the ringmaker— I can put it no plainer than to say that Bilbo was meant to find the ring and not by its maker in which case you were also meant to have it and that may be an encouraging thought or it may not. Um do you see this do you see the point there in the middle? Yes, it was for Bilbo's protection that fate had arranged thing otherwise. The other power had interceded to enable Bilbo to have it so that we make sure that Bilbo gets it right, and uh, uh, not have the kind of sketchy situation that Gandalf was hinting at in the previous paragraph. But notice the further implication: Why does the ring? Sl- why does? Why does Bilbo have the ring? Because the ring slipped away from Gollum, slipped off his hand on purpose. The ring left him behind. Why? Because it was trying to kill him. That's what it did to Isildur. That's what it's doing. That's what the ring does. Right. And Gandalf says if anybody but Bilbo had found the ring, as somebody surely would have done because the ring was trying to be found, right, then that creature would certainly have killed Gollum with it, right? Um, He was being, Gollum was being deliberately betrayed to his death by the ring, except it was Bilbo. By the intervention of whatever power it was, it was Bilbo who found the ring. And so, therefore, Gollum was saved. Bilbo was saved, but Gollum was saved, too. The pity of Bilbo, Bilbo's sparing of Gollum's life, is anticipated by, or rather, is the culmination of the providential intervention in the affairs. It was to save Bilbo, to save the ring, to secure the ring, and give the world this last desperate chance that the ring found its way to Bilbo. But it was also to deliver Gollum. And it was an act of pity towards Gollum. How cool is that? Right? Um, I think that is really, really awesome. Um, Bilbo was meant to find the ring and not by its maker. Um, and again, you can see. You can see because uh, he shows pity to him. Right? Right? in showing pity to gollum he is following the the sort of flow of providence here right um yeah yeah um yeah <laughs> And several of you are making fun boethius references see now you now you guys have uh, we've read boethius together, so you can uh make all these references about fate and providence uh uh Stephen is imagining uh, Gandalf needing to explain the relationship between fate and providence uh uh to uh to to frodo here yeah yeah exactly um Yeah. Oh, interesting, Brianna. Really great point. Brianna points out another difference between this passage here and the published text. The most unlikely creature imaginable, a Baggins all the way from the Shire. It doesn't say, you know, a Bilbo from the Shire is what's in the published text. A Baggins all the way from the Shire. Uh, and that is interesting, emphasizing the Baggins element of Bilbo. Right? Um, I like that. Baggins being very different from your standard hobbit. I agree, Brianna. Um, yeah, exactly, Jennifer. Providence is working in Gollum's favor and Bilbo is the means of the the blessing, the preservation that uh, um, that Providence is, is giving to Gollum here. Um, Gollum is being spared. And that is such a fascinating idea, I just can't get over it. I just absolutely love that. Um, I'm so sorry that we lost that. That's that's That might be my favorite thing that gets cut of anything we've read <laughs> so far. Um, uh, and no, Stephen, in the published version, Gandalf doesn't add, or it may not. He just says, and that may be an encouraging thought. And then Frodo says, it is not, right? Um, Gandalf, in this version, is aware of the fact that, uh, you know, throws it out there that that Frodo might not find that uh, in, encouraging. But even that acknowledgement, Stephen, actually seems to me a really interesting point because uh, notice what he's implying about Bilbo. Right? Um, Bilbo being meant to find the ring on the one hand meant that his own life was saved, um, but it also means that he was immediately made the instrument of destiny to determine the fate of somebody else. Right, and so it might not be an encouraging thought. Kind of is like I admit the fact that uh, the fact that uh, you've been put into this position uh, by some other power uh, kind of puts a burden on you, right? Uh, kind of, uh, it, it you, you might not find that comforting. Okay, the birthday present thing, and again, all of this is occasioned by a one simple reference: the fact that Gollum mentions he calls the ring his birthday present at one point in the first edition text, prior to the end of the Riddle Game. Right? So okay, that's the problem. Gollum is a liar, and you have to sift his words. For instance, you may remember that he told Bilbo that he had been given the ring as a birthday present long ago, when such rings were less common very unlikely on the face of it no kind of magic ring was ever common in his part of the world quite incredible when one suspects what ring this one actually was it was a lie though with a grain of truth i fancy he has made up his mind he had made up his mind what to say if necessary so that the stranger would accept the ring without suspicion and think that gift natural and that is another hobbit like thought birthday present it would have worked well with any hobbit there was no need to tell the lie of course when he found the ring and w- when he found the ring had had gone but he had told the lie to himself so many times in the darkness trying to forget Diego that it slipped out whenever he spoke of the ring he repeated it to me but I laughed at him he then told me more or less the true story but with a lot of sniveling and snarling he thought he was misunderstood and ill treated okay a c- couple things here first i messed up just a second ago i said the problem was that he called it his birthday present before the end of the riddle game, he does. But that's not the problem. The problem is that he calls it his birthday present after the riddle game, um, when he finds the ring missing. Right? Uh, And uh, he's like, my birthday present, my birthday present. Um, Tolkien has an explanation for why he calls it his birthday present when that's obviously untrue. Um, The reason he's calling it that is that he murdered Diego for it. Right? And so he's been, he's been telling himself that. Um, but he also had it prepared as a line. Right? Because remember, he's strategizing, actively planning to ditch the ring. Um, if he finds anybody, who would take it? right? If he finds some other hobbit who might take the ring away from him? Now you might ask, why on earth would Gollum suspect that he would find another hobbit someday to give the ring to? answer, he himself was a hobbit, right? He wandered into the mountains. Someday, maybe another hobbit will wander into the mountains. Doesn't actually seem all that far-fetched, given his own history, right? Maybe one of his own people will eventually come the same way that he did, right? And he'll have this opportunity. But anyway, okay, So, uh, uh, so he's been actively planning, and so he made up the story. I'm going to say it was my birthday present. That way, if I say, Oh, here, I have a present for you, it's a very powerful magic ring. He realizes that anyone's going to be like, Dude, where the heck did you get this? And why the heck are you giving it to me? Right. Um, So he needs a plausible explanation that A explains how he got it and B explains, like contextualizes it so that re gifting it doesn't seem too weird. Right. So, the birthday present. But then the problem is, if he's already lost it and he doesn't have it to give, he doesn't need his phony baloney story about the birthday present, so why does he say it? Answer, because he's been repeating it to himself, because he's actually been rationalizing it um, for uh, uh, for the murder of Diego, right? Um, it's how he's been rationalizing the murder of Diego. So we get both of those things, the stratagem and the rationalization that he's come to internalize, right? Now, I agree. Final point, Josiah. Another wonderful observation. You are certainly right that I laughed at him is a far cry from I put the fear of fire on him. Yes, Gandalf in this text does not threaten to torture Gollum. He just laughs at him and gets Gollum to tell uh, the true story. Um, But notice, Josiah, there's a lot less urgency all the way through from Gandalf, right? Um, Not only does this Gandalf not say... I put the fear of fire on him. He also doesn't say, the truth was desperately important, right? Um, nowhere in this conversation does Gandalf seem to imply that the truth is desperately important. Um, we're much more casual back here in the fourth phase. Here's Christopher's sort of summary and explanation of this, and I love this. He was being driven, he, J.R.R. Tolkien, was being driven to more and more intricate shifts to get around what had been said in The Hobbit. But it seems to me very likely that it was precisely while he was pondering this problem that the story of the murder of Diego, and incidentally, the changing of Gollum's true name to Smeagol, he was originally called Diego uh, himself. But then the the new, the new splitting off of the Diego character and his murder by Smeagol, which is interesting, right? Since Diego was Gollum's own original name, the fact that Smeagol kills Diego almost is already like Gollum at war with himself. It's just kind of fun, right? But anyway, okay. Uh, co- well, no, maybe not coincidence, but uh, anyway, okay, that Gollum had lied about its being a birthday present was an obvious necessity from the story of the ring that had come into being. That is, as soon as we got the ring of power from the second phase on, as soon as it became clear that Frodo's ring was a big deal and the ring wraiths and the rings of power and the wraithification process and everything, once we had gone there in phase two, it was no, it was now clearly impossible that Gollum had received it as a birthday present. Even before it, like. Influenced you in these ways and whatever. Okay. Uh-huh, from the story that the ring had come into being. But Gandalf's theory in the, in the third version, that Gollum told this lie to Bilbo in order to get him to accept the ring, has had a serious weakness. Why did Gollum only do so, as the story was told in The Hobbit, after he found that he had lost it? The answer to this was that it was an invention of Gollum's that he had come partly to believe, quite independently of Bilbo's arrival. But why was that? And this story of the murder of Diago on Smeagol's birthday, the ground of Smeagol's lie with a grain of truth, became a permanent element in the tale of Gollum, surviving when, years later, the story of Riddles in the Dark was recast, and the very difficulty that, if I am right, had brought it into being, was eliminated. Right. Um, ultimately, retconning the, the story these things that were said in the original Hobbit is what leads to changing those things which led to the retconning in the first place, right? And will lead to the second generation retconning of when Tolkien has to now retcon the fact that the thing changed from the first edition to the second edition. Uh, and we'll see how that works a little bit uh, later on. Um, yeah, Nancy, exactly. He wouldn't have changed the Hobbit otherwise. Um, I can't wait till we get to the changing of the Hobbit story. i um, after thinking this stuff through more this week, I was thinking back to those letters in Tolkien's collected letters about the uh, the revised chapter five and how that came about, and I'm kind of thinking some new thoughts about it. I have to say, but I want to wait till we get there. Um, uh, let's 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 see how this continues to develop. Uh, I, uh, don't let's be hasty. Um, but uh, but it's really neat how it comes back and eats its tail here. The 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 changes, which is why I titled this slide Ouroboros. Okay. We still have a few... I started late, so we have still a few minutes to talk about Frodo's dream. So let's look at Frodo's dream. First, brief reminder, um, in the second phase and the third phase, he, Frodo, dreams in Crick Hollow. When he gets to Crick Hollow and before they leave to enter the old forest, he has a dream. And in both cases, it's the same. He has a vague dream. It's called a vague dream. He has a vague dream and his dream is of looking out from a high place over the trees of the forest and of hearing snuffling creatures searching around underneath, underneath it. Right. That was the dream that he has. In, he had that dream in Crick Hollow in the second phase. Slightly expanded in the third phase but same dream and it stops there. Okay. Uh, now, in the narrative outline, dated autumn 1939, given on page 9, so that's one of the, one of the slips, like slip 6 or something like that, uh, of those uh, sheets of paper that Christopher Tolkien described early on. Gandalf is besieged in the Western Tower. He cannot get away while they guard it with five riders. But when black riders have located Frodo and found that he has gone off without, to, without Gandalf, they ride away. This is what Frodo saw in his dream. My father was much exercised about the placing of it. In the time schemes A and B, this is in that chart of Gandalf A through D, right? In the time schemes A and B, the date given of Gandalf's escape from the Western Tower was, give, was first given as 24 September. And there is a suggestion that Frodo dreamt his dream on the event, on the event of that night, when with the elves in the woody end so that Frodo is having the dream at the same time it's actually happening out at the Western Tower. Um, uh, right. The date was then changed to the 25th when Frodo was at Crick Hollow and so appears, in that is, uh, Gandalf's uh, the lifting of the siege of Gandalf in the Tower, the event that's described in the dream. That happens on the, while Frodo is at Crick Hollow, not while Frodo is with the elves in the Woody End. Um, and so appears in schemes A, B, and C. Scheme D gives no date for Gandalf's escape and places the Dream of the Tower variously on the 24th, 25th, or 26th. For some reason, however, my father decided to place it after the event, on the night of the 29th, when Frodo was at Bree and Gandalf at Crickhollow. Okay, so originally the first impulse was Frodo is going to have this dream where he's going to see Gandalf imprisoned in the Western Tower, and it's going to happen on the same night that it's happening. So he's having this contemporary vision. Now, if you attended my exploring the Lord of the Rings class uh, on last Tuesday, you will remember that that's where I started off. Right, I started off saying, "Hey, remember the dreams that happen in the Hobbit? That there are three dreams that are described in the Hobbit, and two of them are sort of." prophetic dreams, their visions anyway, of something that is happening at the time. The dream he has in Bjorn's house, the dream dream he has uh, in the goblin cave, right? Um Bilbo dreams of the thing that is occurring at the same time that he can't see. Right? Okay. Um he but but again, but it's happening at this but it's actually occurring at the same time. Original and then of course in class last week I was pointing up, but that's not the kind of dream he's having here, it turns out, right? Except originally it was. That's exactly the kind of dream that Frodo is having. He is dreaming of Gandalf's escape from the tower at the time on the night that it's actually occurring. Then Tolkien changes his mind and says, no, let's have it later, right? He doesn't have it until he gets to Bree. So five or four or three days later, whichever it turns out to be, um, he... Frodo is dreaming about Gandalf's escape three days before, so it's still a sort of visionary insight into a thing that actually happened, but it's not happening at the same time. So the first change is a small change, a subtle change. It's not a current events dream, it's a recent events dream. Fine. Okay. But still, it's a contemporary events dream. Nevertheless, it's a vision into what's actually occurring. Here's the dream of the tower as it's narrated in the fourth phase. Frodo soon went to sleep again, but now he passed it once into a dream. Remember, he's in Bree. This is the night when they're snoozing while Trotter is standing watch as the, as the inn is being attacked. So somewhere there's a bolster getting slashed, right, while, while Frodo is having this dream. Frodo soon went to sleep again, but now he passed it once into a dream. He found himself on a dark heath. Looking up, he saw before him a tall white tower standing alone upon a high ridge. Beyond it, the sky was pale, and far off there came a murmur like the voices of the great sea, which he had never, uh, which he had never, uh, heard nor beheld save in other dreams. In the topmost chamber of the tower, there shone dimly a blue light. The blue light makes me think of Gandalf. Remember, he shines the blue light from his staff a lot. That's a Gandalf thing, uh, so that's presumably what he's seeing here. Suddenly he found that he had drawn near, and the tower loomed high above him. About its feet there was a wall of faintly shining stones, and outside the wall sat silent watchers, black-robed figures on black horses, gazing at the gate of the tower without moving, as if they had sat there forever. There came at last the soft fall of hoofs climbing up the hill. The watchers all stirred and turned slowly towards the sound. They were looking towards Frodo. He did not dare to turn, but he knew that behind him another dark figure, taller and more terrible, had appeared. It beckoned and called out in a strange tongue. The horsemen leaped to life. They raised their dark heads towards the lofty chamber, and their mocking laughter rang out cruel and cold. Then they turned from the white wall and rode down the hill like the wind. The blue light went out. All right. Um, So this is the... Okay, not current events dream. The recent events dream uh, that he has in Bree. This is the only narrative depiction of Gandalf's captivity. This is clearly when Gandalf is besieged. So he's taken refuge in this tower, been chased around the Shire by the Ring Wraiths, and they, they, they corner him on this tower out uh, way to the west of the Shire, and they have him surrounded until one comes up, taller and more terrible. Right, the wizard king of the of the ring wraiths, presumably, right, comes up and tells them in the news. Hey guys, um, time to knock off here. Uh, we've we found the hobbit, so we don't need the wizard anymore. Don't worry about him. Let's take off. Um, and, uh, uh, and and off they go. James is asking the excellent question: Does the blue light hold the riders at bay? Possibly. I mean, it it certainly within the dream indicates the presence of Gandalf. Right, enables Frodo to be able to guess what is significant about this tower and who might be up it perhaps um but uh, is it also supposed to suggest that you know that they um you know why they uh, are not attacking and are merely besieging him possibly at least in a kind of symbolic way perhaps uh, okay okay so he's the sea is involved in the vision but only incidentally right um there comes a murmur like the voices of the Great Sea, which he had never heard, save in other dreams. Never heard or seen, save in other dreams. So we get a reference, a thrown-off reference to the fact that he's had other dreams about the sea, but the sea doesn't seem to be a central figure here. It's just background for the tower. Right? There's this tower because the geography... it's, it's, It's important because it fixes the geography. Gandalf is imprisoned in a tower. Where's the tower? Oh, out west, because on account of you could hear the ocean in the background. Right? That seems to be the whole function. The ocean doesn't seem to have any other symbolic significance here and frodo doesn't respond to it in any other way we don't get a an upwelling of desire in frodo here right we don't see any sort of sea longing coming over him or anything like that um it's um it's 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 just it's just it's just geography right okay now this is the continuation right? It's, so notice, uh, hang on, going back to this last paragraph. Um, so there's a the sound of hoofs, and the watchers all turn towards the sound of hoofs, and they're looking towards Frodo, right? So he's positioned with the, like, the Witch King riding up right behind him. So when they all turn to look at the Witch King, or excuse me, Wizard King riding up, um, Frodo feels like they're all looking at him, which is a really fun effect. But But there's turns out there's more to it in the last paragraph here. It seemed to Frodo that the riders came straight towards him. So as they're leaving, they're coming straight towards him, which is perfectly appropriate and very significant, because they are, right? They're, they are coming for him. They have come for him. Um, that's why they're leaving Gandalf. Uh, so the, the point of view right the, the 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 point from which the sort of point of view of Frodo's dream is fixed in the dream is significant because it conveys in a very visceral sense a really important piece of information, right? They see you and now they're coming for you, right and that's that's pretty cool. okay. Um, but even as they passed over him and beat him to the ground, right? So they're like galloping right on top of him and he feels himself being beaten down to the ground by the black riders as they're riding over him, right. This is a threat. This is a warning, right? Um, he thought in his heart, I am not here. this They cannot hurt me. There is something that I must see, right? So he's fighting against the panic that's coming over him. He realized, no, wait, this is a dream. I have to use it. So we have the will of Frodo rising above, not just being a victim of the vision that's being given to him, right? And him asserting his his own need through his own will. I need to see what's going on. He lifted his head and saw a white horse leap the wall in stride towards him. On it rode a gray-mantled figure. His white hair was streaming, and his cloak flew like wings behind him. As the gray rider bore down upon him, he strove to see his face. The light grew in the sky, and suddenly there was a noise of thunder. The light and the thunder, of course, happens in the Crick Hollow dream, too. Um, Frodo opened his eyes. Trotter had drawn the curtains and had pushed back the shutters with a clang. Hence the light and the noise. Um, The first gray light of day was in the room. The vision of his dream faded quickly, but its mingled fear and hope remained with him all day. And for long the far sound of the sea came back to him whenever great danger was at hand. He's received information. He takes from it a message of fear and hope. Fear. Fear. They're coming for you. They know where you are, and they're coming for you. Hope, Gandalf is coming too. He didn't see his face, not 100% sure he's Gandalf, but he seems to suspect, I would think, right? And yes, Jennifer, Um, exactly, Jennifer says in this version, the sea becomes more important to Frodo after he wakes up than it is during the actual dream. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's really cool right? In retrospect, we n- noticed the, the very terms that we were using in our discussion last week in exploring the Lord of the Rings, fear and hope, right? Fear and desire. Those are the things that we see, uh, that, those are exactly the terms that Tolkien is using to describe the dream. I have to admit, I felt a little bit smug about that. I'm not going to lie. Uh, uh, that was pretty cool. But notice, this is his interpretation of the Gandalf portion, Right? Um, because the dream is different from the one that we were talking about, the one that he gets in Crick Hollow in the Fellowship of the Ring. There's no Gandalf. There's no Black Riders. It's not a current events dream. Right? So what happens? This is Christopher speaking. Taking into account the words of the outline given on page 9 that Gandalf, pursued by the riders, tried to get round to the west of the Shire, and the mention of the sound of the sea in the text, it is seen that Gandalf had fled to the elf towers on the Tower Hills beyond the west marches of the Shire, those towers which, at the very beginning of the writing of the Lord of the Rings, Bingo said that he had once seen shining white in the moon, the tallest was furthest away, standing alone on a hill." So Bingo once said that he had seen an elf tower before and it may even be this same elf tower so that becomes foreshadowing right uh of this thing. Notice Christopher's commentary here it's geography right the ocean is just about geography. See we can see not the symbolic significance of the dream we can see the um the news value right of the dream. Um yeah yeah um and I agree with you, Brianna. Uh it is interesting to think that we have yet another prophetic dream connected to water in the sea. Yeah, sure is, isn't it? Um He changes it. Um this gets moved back to Crick Hollow eventually he fell into a vague dream in which he seemed to be looking out of a high window over a dark sea of tangled trees down below among the roots there was the sound of creatures crawling and snuffling he felt sure they would smell him out sooner or later we have arrived at the published first paragraph uh pretty much right of frodo's dream Remember, that's the part of the dream that he always had in Crick Hollow. Frodo always—initially, it was just an anxiety dream. That's all he had, the anxiety dream about the scary forest he was going to go into and the things snuffling around and sniffing for him and searching for him, the Black Riders. So he's anxious about the Black Riders, he's anxious about the forest, and he's having an anxiety dream the night before he goes into them. That's in Phase 2. That's in Phase 3. That's in phase four, but now we combine the two. We combine his old anxiety dream with his dream of the tower, right? His his recent events dream of Gandalf in the tower. Then he heard a noise in the distance. At first he thought it was great wind coming over the leaves of the forest. I don't know about you, does this make you think of the dwarves' wind song in The Hobbit? Because it totally makes me think of the dwarves' wind song in The Hobbit, but anyway uh then he knew that it was not leaves but the sound of the sea far off a sound he had never heard in waking life though it had tr- though it had often troubled other dreams by the way the mere addition of the word troubled here right remember in the previous one what did we get where was it here um like the voices of the great sea which he had never heard nor beheld save in other dreams very neutral right He'd never seen it or heard it, except in other dreams. He had her seen and heard it in, in other dreams, but never in real life. That's all it says, right? Now we learn that not just that he has seen and heard the, the, the sea in other dreams, but that he has been troubled by the sound of the sea in other dreams. Suddenly he found he was out in the open. There were no trees after all. He was on a dark heath, and there was a strange salt smell in the air. Looking up, he saw before him a tall white tower, Standing alone on a high ridge, in its topmost chamber, a blue light shone dimly. As he drew nearer, the tower loomed high above him. About its feet there was a wall of faintly gleaming stones, and outside the wall sat silent watchers. There seemed to be four black-robed figures, seated on black horses, gazing at the tower without moving, as if they had sat there forever. This is his new dream in Crick Hollow. What do we get? Both, right? Uh, I say both. What do I mean? I mean we get both the prophetic, visionary, recent events dream from Brie in the earlier version, and we get the fear, hope, the counter-anxiety dream that we see. That was the conclusion that we were drawing last week in exploring the Lord of the Rings, the published dream that Frodo has in Crick Hollow, the dream of the tower. It's almost exactly identical in the first two paragraphs, until we get to the blue light. Right? There's no blue light. And there's no wall, and there's no Black Riders, right? It's not a, it's not a current events dream at all. Um, <clears throat> it's just a white tower by the sea, and Frodo lo- wants to climb up in the tower and see the sea. It's all about desire and sea longing. Um, and we were talking about how in the published in that published dream, we have his fear and anxiety about the forest and about the riders being turned into desire. His desire to be safe and his desire to run away being turned into his desire to pursue right um, uh, So again from, from, from fear to, uh, to hope and to desire. here we get both the current events dream and the anxiety antidote dream, right? The faith versus fear the hope versus fear dream. Um, and, uh, yeah. Greta says she finds herself hoping the sun will rise and the black riders will be turned to stone. Yeah. Um, Stephen, I don't know what to make of the Wall of Faintly Gleaming Stones. It kind of leads you to believe, doesn't it, that there's something not just about Gandalf's power that's keeping them at bay, but something about the power of the Elf Tower itself, right? Its wall is glowing with a white light, which seems—they're not going inside that wall, the Black Riders, right? Um, so is this like a a, a Ringwraith-repelling wall, Right, uh, is there elf magic still about this tower? Um, did Gandalf flee to this place not because it just happened to be a good fortification you know in which he could hole up um but because it had magic that he knew would keep the ring wraiths at bay. Um I am inclined to think that way, Stephen, anyway, so okay, so Tolkien hasn't abandoned the recent events element of the dream. We're still getting that, which again, that's the traditional dream, like the Hobbit kind of dream right I mean that is from the Hobbit. But now he's he's beginning to give it that significance that it has, by combining it with the anxiety dream about the old forest, right, he makes it an alternative. Um, Brianna, he makes it into a message. As Stephen had just been saying, um, you know, look back even at what it said after, you know, in Bree, um, for long the far sound of the sea came back to him whenever great danger was at hand. And Stephen says, you know, Olmo right I mean, is that it doesn't it sound more like an intervention an ocean related intervention right um and Brianna, yeah, absolutely. I mean I was suggesting that the uh, in my class last week, I was suggesting uh, that this dream kind of sounds like a very what would the adjective form be almonian, Ol- uh omonic. I'm gonna go with Olmonic, unless I, unless you guys come up with a better suggestion. Olmaic, yeah, and you can't do with it. The A doesn't fit. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sticking with Olmonic. Uh, it's it certainly sounds like an Olmonic dream, both in its both in its subject matter, um, and in the way that it comes. The fact that it's a dream that comes to him, and of course, Brianna, remember, he's just crossed a river. Right, he's still not far from the river when he's having this dream in the first place, right? Um uh <laughs> almost says Stephen. Very good. Um yeah, yeah. Uh, I stick with Omonic. Anyway, um he combines these elements, right? The elements of the the, the vision of the the information dream and the uh, the portent dream, the thematic dream, the encouragement dream, the hope dream. Um, eventually, this is going to be split up, right? Frodo's going to get this dream, instead of these two things being combined into one, he's going to have two separate dreams uh, in the published text. Um, but here, uh, the... I love the placement of this, how this vision of... The 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 tower, of course, is going to stick around after Gandalf is gone, after Gandalf is no longer in that tower, right? Um, there will be no need for... The sea was originally just geography, right? Uh, so that Frodo could place exactly where it was that, that Gandalf was captured. Uh, it was just to convey information to him about what's going on so that he can know. That was the original point of the dream. Eventually... um the next step from this, the tower is going to be entirely symbolic. And the, the whole significance of the tower is going to be the fact that it's by the sea and his desire for the sea. So, uh, far from being mere geography, uh, as, uh, Christopher was emphasizing, uh, in the, where did it go? The, oh yeah, this part, the elf towers one, um, as Christopher was suggesting here, uh, far from being just geographical context, it's going to be the entire point of the vision. And that's a really cool uh, transformation, I think. Um, all right. I have one more slide, but you know what? I'm going to save it for next time. No, I'm not. We're going to finish because we're already late anyway. And it's really quick. I just wanted to point this out to make sure we saw this because it's important, uh, when thinking about Tom Bombadil and the evolution of Tom Bombadil. Um, At this time, Tom's words, he, Butterbur, knows Tom Bombadil, and Tom's name will help you. Um, Say, Tom sent us here, and he will treat you kindly. I'm sorry, I read that wrong. This is Tom Bombadil speaking. He knows Tom Bombadil, and Tom's name will help you. Say, Tom sent us here, and he will treat you kindly. Hear the rhythm? right. Say, Tom sent us here, and he will treat you kindly. Ho, Tom Bombadil, Tom Bombadillo. Sorry. Okay. Uh, so Tom's words were rejected, uh, metrical though they be, and Tom's parting words in the Fellowship of the Ring appear, Tom's country ends here. He will not, he will not pass the borders. In this connection, see the note given on page 10 concerning the boundaries of Tom's domain. There, my father was thinking of harmonizing Gandalf's remark in the Council of Elrond uh, that Bombadil never left his own ground with the story that he was known to Butterbur. Uh, you, you'll you remember in the second, when they get to Bree for the first time, um, it is with Tom's recommendation, and when they mention Tom Bombadil to Butterbur, he's like, oh, yeah, well, if you know Tom Bombadil, no problem. Um... So he's trying to harmonize these two things by suggesting that Tom's boundaries extended to Bree, But he concluded that Tom Bombadil was not, in fact, known to Butterbur, and the changes here reflect that decision. But notice what's still left. right? In the published text, you'll recall that Tom still um, recommends the Prancing Pony. right? So Tom has never been to the Prancing Pony. Butterbur doesn't know who he is. right? So Tom's uh, boundaries don't extend as far as Brie but he still heard of it right he can still recommend the prancing pony and that actually is kind of interesting because it shows that even if tom has never gone there he does take at least a little bit of an interest in places that are outside of his boundaries and that's interesting i think um jennifer says maybe farmer maggot has been to the pony and recommended it to tom maybe though uh uh yeah maybe we'll see um yeah yeah I agree, Brian. The image of Tom Bombadil sitting in the common room at Bree and having a beer with the the local men and hobbits is hard to is hard to give that out. It's it's uh, only with reluctance that we would give up that image, right? But of course, you can see Tolkien was reluctant to give it up too. That's why he initially tried to to reconcile them. Um, all right, that's it. I kept you late here tonight, but we got through our chapter. See, right on schedule. That's the theme of the Treason of Isengard. Thanks, everybody. This was great fun. I will see you guys next week. I'm going to be away the week after next. Um, so And you'll see that's built right into the schedule. You will have noticed that the schedule skips right over the very first Wednesday of August. That's because I'm going to be away and I'm not confident enough in my internet connection. Um, And I don't think I'm going to be able to broadcast late at night because my family will be sleeping in the same room. So um, I'm going to have to not do class in two weeks, but we'll meet next week and then we'll resume again the week after that. Thanks very much, everybody. And I will see you guys next time. Bye now.